Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Hello, listeners. Hello, fans. Hello, friends. And hello, potential newbies who've randomly stumbled on their stilettos and fallen right into our podcast. It's Dark Night of the Podcast, and it's March. It's officially March. We're out of February. No more Valentine's Day. But that doesn't mean that we're not popping cherries. That's right. We're popping cherries left and right, me and Troy, and we're popping your cherries today. That is, if you've never seen Cherry Falls, Troy, it's Cherry Falls Day at Dark Night of the Podcast. You ready to pop some cherries? I'm ready to pop all the cherries, Roger, especially the cherries of any new listeners that stumble upon us. Oh, pop, pop, pop away. (laughs) What an episode to stumble upon if you've never listened to us. Yeah, I mean, and in in good ways and bad, I'm sure. Because you know what, listeners? Uh, I think I went into this film, went into reviewing this movie with one expectation, and I'm walking away feeling completely different than I anticipated. And that's very vague, uh, but uh, I hope that at least sparks some intrigue and keeps you around for the whole thing. That is very interesting, Roger, because I am in the same boat with you. I have a a little bit of a different impression of this film, this most recent viewing than I remember having when I watched it for the first couple times all those years ago when it debuted on USA Network, because this film, while it wasn't, it didn't start out being a made for television movie, it ended up being a made-for-television movie and still to this day remains the most expensive made-for-television movie ever uh, because it got pushed to the USA Network and never got a theatrical release. And I remember all of the hype and buzz and just everything surrounding this movie when it first came out. And there was all this uh, stuff about how much of the film had been cut and like the original death scenes. And we're, we're, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. We're going to talk your ear off about Cherry Falls, but just a few little housekeeping things first, Roger, right? We want to say, um, you know, thank you. If you've tapped the little five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we've, we've noticed our review count go up. So a couple of you have done that. If that was you, thank you so much. If you have not done that and you enjoy what we do, go to Apple Podcasts, hit the little five stars Submit, or even better, write us a review. We love reading the reviews. We haven't got a new review uh, written since like November, guys, and it's March. Come on, come on. Yeah, yeah, please. I mean, hear them out because we need that love, though we do appreciate the stars that have been left for us recently, the five-star reviews. Uh, we, we would love to see some pros <laughs> to go along alongside it, just telling us how fabulous we are. We know it. I mean, we know it, but we need to hear it from you. And f- and the other thing is we do have our Patreon, patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast. 
The link will be in the show notes. We have, uh, we now have 10, Roger, 10 full length episodes on our Patreon for you to sink your ears into. If you subscribe, we have our most recent episodes. We did house of the dead. We did obsessed the Beyonce film, some great stuff for March. We have some, our, our Patreon stuff planned. So if you want bonus material, we're getting, we're in double digits. We're in double digits already on the Patreon. Yeah. I'm, I'm quite impressed with us. We've really stuck to our guns and uh, provided in a, a consistent flow of fresh material. And some of our best episodes, I got to say, are on that Patreon. So uh, joining in will really be a treat, I assure you. I actually agree. I think I think there's about there's two episodes on Patreon that I think are among our best that we've ever done. Um, just the vibe, the the content, how you know. But hey, you got to join to f- listen and figure out which ones we're talking about. Okay, so Cherry Falls, and I did want to acknowledge Roger. This is another milestone for us because this episode happens to be our sixtieth six. Zero. Oh God, we're senior citizens now. <laughs> we are popping our cherry at the age of sixty. How sad! Oh my God, what, I know. what a sad life we've lived that it's taken us this long. But here we are, popping cherries. The whole town, everyone. There is no virgins left <laughs> in Dark Night of the Podcast. None. None, because we're popping all the cherries. And today, it's Cherry Falls. We're we're, we're making sure we're getting in real deep into Cherry Falls for your pleasure. Um, and I, I got to say, Troy, I was so excited for this episode. And I don't exactly know why, but I feel like this movie has developed this like kind of unique cult-like phenomenon around it where people really love it and celebrate it and think it's this amazing entity uh, because of the story that exists around it. And I think also because of the presence of Brittany Murphy, who, as we all know, we unfortunately lost, uh, what, like was over 10 years ago now and maybe was it 2011 something around that it's been a while uh i'm very unfortunate because she's an amazing talent and she is i have to say the best thing about this movie uh i i think she's a standout performer in this film however that being said with this kind of fascination that exists around this movie revisiting it today i went to it with a lot of excitement because i had watched it in so long, but I'd read all of these articles and pieces and posts and prose by people stating just how much they adored this film. And so I kind of built it up in my mind that I also adored this movie. And then I watched it again and I had forgotten just how flawed this film actually is. This movie for all of the entertainment value is a clunky motherfucker. This film at times struggles to tell a coherent story for a lot of reasons. And we're going to get into it. The core story that exists is fairly good, and the acting is fairly standout for a slasher. However, the biggest issue, and I think the thing that you and I are going to discuss the most and target the most with this review, is the absolute lack of visible kills or violence whatsoever over the course of this movie absolutely neuters this film as a, as a horror movie as a slasher it does this movie a grave injustice and there are so many opportunities where this film could have excelled with that particularly like there's one final scene uh that could have been an amazingly uh, an amazing showcase of 
gore and death and and everything else. And I think you know what I'm talking about. But they totally just did not go there at all with it. And it's a shame. It's a shame that this film, you know, has an interesting concept, but then fails really to do anything interesting with it. Oh, I agree completely. You know, a lot of movies from that era, everything post Scream is often referred to as being a Scream ripoff. Uh, like an urban legend of, I know what you did last summer, but I don't really look at like either of those movies, for example, and think scream ripoff. I think they still tell their own stories and they do them in a way with a style that feels of, of their own. This movie, as I revisit it today, out of all the films that spawn from that era, this movie by far feels like the most scream esque out of all of them. From the setting within the high school to a lot of the characters involved, the police presence in this small town, even the way they styled the character of Jody, her look, her haircut, her uh, her denim jackets, like it all kind of gives a Sydney Prescott vibe to it. So I really left this movie thinking that it, it really felt like it was trying to be another scream. Yeah, and there are scenes that I would say had to have been Oh, I don't want to say ripped off, duplicated from the original Scream and even Scream 2 in this film. And we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, let's let's just get right into it, folks, because you yeah. might we might if you're a huge fan of this film, we might have soured you already. But we don't want that to happen because there are a lot of good things to say about this film. So let's get into it. Right. Shall we? Well, yeah. Well, one thing I want to say going off what you just said, Troy, and to kind of pad any criticisms I have. And I know you're aware of it. You already kind of mentioned it, but I really want to precursor this review with the knowledge that this film was not originally conceived or created to be a made-for-TV movie. This movie was originally threatened with an X rating. Uh, And when you say it has the largest budget to date for a TV movie, it is a $14 million film. However, the original cut went through so much editing and, and so many adjustments by the time it even fell into the hands of was it was it USA that released this USA yeah. Network, yeah, and then they cut it down that much more. So what you're left with is something that com- completely om- omits, removes the violence from the film, the death sequences. So it, it really does feel like a bit of a jumbled mess. But I I do put a lot of that on the trials and tribulations that befell this project before it was eventually seen by anybody. I'm aware of that. I know you are too. What we're reviewing is the the final product of of that unfortunate process. Um, And, you know, that all being said, the movie is what it is. And just because it's unfortunate what happened, doesn't mean that I'm not going to sit here and and be transparent about how I feel about the final product. Exactly. And maybe, you know, they haven't done it yet, so I doubt it's ever going to happen, but it would have been really awesome if after this movie gained some sort of following and notoriety as it has, that they would have released a cut of the film that was more in line with the original, the director's original vision um, with the gore intact and and everything, because I think that would be very interesting to see and it could make it a a much different movie. However, that's not the movie's only problem. The, The characters in this film are really wonky. Their motivations are very sometimes at odds with how they were at certain points in the movie. Um, they seem to flip flop if that makes sense. 
they're just a lot of weird, weird vibes that this film gives off, uh, particularly with like sexual tensions between adults and, and kids. Mm-hmm. And it's just very weird. Oh, the the Oedipus vibes that you get throughout the course of this movie are uncomfortable to say the least. And they and they go nowhere. So it's not. I don't understand why they were included in the first place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a lot of scenes that go nowhere, and a lot of stuff that just goes nowhere with this film. And 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 and, and if you're a fan of this film. I just I implore you to just watch it again after you after our review and just from the lens of kind of what we're where we're coming from and just see if you see the same stuff that we are. The film opens. It does open with a very I do like kind of the opening shots of the film. They're very atmospheric. There's this disturbing, creepy, like humming score at the beginning. It's a woman humming and just random shots of the town, which we find out is called Cherry Falls. It all of a sudden turns to night and we are at the actual falls where a car is parked. And inside this car are two teenagers, Rod, played by, I must say, the ever handsome Jesse Bradford. Oh, my God. He's so fucking cute. From Swim Fan. He's in this film. He doesn't have much to do, but he's with Stacy making out. The first thing I notice with his dialogue <laughs> is he is talking like no T I've, I've been in education Roger for 17 years. Okay. Yeah. I've spent 17 years in public education. 16 of them have been in, in a high school. I have never heard a kid talk like this. Oh, it's awkward. That is the other problem with this film. Roger is none of these kids talk like kids. Yeah, well, I think the I think what they're really trying to do in this opening scene, and I do think they fail in, m- in multiple ways. They fail, but I think the the biggest issue is they have this opening bit of dialogue in which he's trying to like woo and seduce his girlfriend Stacy, but Rod is trying to seduce Stacy by like giving her this whole spiel that he is like, some Zuba block sci fi mumbo jumbo from another planet, and I think they're really trying to hit home that this guy must be like a nerd. Or like a science geek. Even his license plate says Supnova, Supernova. But he, they're trying to be like, this kid's a virgin. He's clearly a virgin. But it feels so unnatural. It doesn't feel authentic at all. It feels very, um, very forced. And what's even worse is like, you look at these characters. He's very attractive. She's very attractive. They don't fit the mold of what I think they're trying to present. So all it gives me for an opening is kind of just like something that's really hard to translate. I don't understand what's going on, why he's talking to her the way he is. And if it's supposed to be appealing. Yeah. There's a weird line where he's like, we need to put all of our cosmic energy and get our bodies together for that one huge explosion. I mean, what teenage boy talks like that? And he's like talking to her in like the, it's almost like Shakespearean and it's just ridiculous. And luckily the opening scene is so fucking short that it doesn't matter anyways, because immediately a car pulls up behind them. He's trying to get with her. She gets mad at him. She doesn't want to go all the way. Uh, So she gets out of the car for just like a brief moment, which could have led Somewhere, you know, it could have led to maybe a nice chase scene with the killer when she gets out of the car. Nope, it doesn't. He's like, get back in here. And she does. He, uh, he gets out of the car 
and goes to approach the car that has pulled up behind him. And we see that there's somebody sitting behind the steering wheel. As he approaches the car, he's like, hey, Ben, is that you? Uh, the car door slams open, knocks him down. This killer in this getup that, again, not the most effective killer disguise I've ever seen. Can we just put that out there? Oh, I have a, a big spiel on that. Okay. Yeah. Start stabbing the shit out of Rod. from, But we see it from a distance. It's very... We see it from a distance. Well, we see it from Stacy's perspective. Yeah. She's in the car still. She starts screaming, goes quiet for a little bit. And then all of a sudden you hear Rod scratching at the door, crying for her to unlock the door. I mean, bitch, no. The keys are in the car. Get your little skinny white ass in the driver's seat. Start the car. Back up. Smash into the other car and get the fuck out of there. Drive into the goddamn water. I mean, I'll do anything. Do something. But what does she do? She does nothing. She opens the door. She (laughs) unlocks the door and opens it. Like, oh my God. I am trying to give this movie the benefit of the doubt, considering the whole spiel I gave beforehand about, you know, knowing that it was totally neutered, knowing that it's been cut down so much. But that being said, it doesn't mean that I can make an excuse for the writing. And that I think is one of the biggest issues for me is this movie is tonally all over the place and it it never really gels. This movie does not land on its feet for me whatsoever, beginning to end. It's always kind of just weebling and wobbling. And uh, at one point it's going one direction, another point it's going another direction. And I find it very hard to follow. Uh, And this opening scene is honestly, in my opinion, one of the weakest opening kills of the genre uh, for a lot of reasons. First of all, as the girl gets out, as, as Stacy gets out of the car and finally goes to run after, you know, the killer tries to grab at her, uh, she opens the door, she stumbles to a tree, and the killer catches up and gets her up against a tree and starts to taunt her with a knife and then, like, goes in for a kiss. And as the killer goes in for a kiss, it fades to black. And I found that infuriating because they didn't even give us, like, some suspense. Okay, this is... This is and made edited to be a made for TV movie. I get it. You've got to cut out the the violence to a certain extent, but that doesn't mean you can't be scary. Look at movies like that um, Cabin by the Lake. Remember that movie, Cabin by the Lake? Even though with Judd Nelson. Remember that movie? Yeah, yeah. I that do. movie is a made for TV movie that I think was pretty fucking well handled and had lots of moments of tension, suspense. This does not have that in this moment. Roger, there there is a countless made for TV movies that have a lot of that are very scary. Remember um Trilogy of Terror. Our namesake, our namesake, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow was a made for TV movie. I mean, and that is one of the most terrifying films probably to come out of the the late 70s. So, it can be done. It's just it wasn't it wasn't for this one. It was that wasn't a priority, apparently. No, and I think the thing that really makes this not scary is, you know, coming full circle, the reasoning and rationale behind a lot of the characters, but especially in this opening sequence, this whole moment with Stacy opening the door, letting Rod into the vehicle, immediately letting the killer inside too. She, it's not like she doesn't have the keys. It's not like she doesn't have the means to escape. It's right there in front of her. There's a lot of things this girl could do 
to survive. And the only reason she doesn't survive is out of her sheer incompetence. And so right off the bat, you're giving us a situation in which these characters seem very stupid. And for me as a viewer, unreliable. I don't want to root for stupid people. So it definitely is. It starts on a really weak note. Well, it also does this weird thing uh, editing wise where when she tries to get out of the vehicle, it does this like jump cut slow motion. Oh my God. That strobe, that yes. strobe style. The I strobe slow mo and it, but it's never used again in the entire film. Like it's, it's setting it up to be like, it's some stylistic choice, but then it is never used again. My least favorite stop. My least favorite cinematic trope of from the era from the late nineties is that strobe style cinematography. And I think it looks so cheap. And I don't know if this is an effect that they put on this because it's a made-for-TV movie, because it screams made-for-TV movie. But if this would have been shot this way and edited this way and released, you know, as a as a mainstream theatrical release, and I saw that kind of footage in there, it would automatically like piss me off because I think it just looks so cheap. It does. Uh, it, it reminds me, it's, it looks like a commercial, like it's a commercial for something. After this opening scene, which we mentioned is very brief, you don't get a chance to get to know anything about these two characters there before they're gone. We cut to another car where inside is Jody and her boyfriend, Kenny, making out. Jody is played by Brittany Murphy, the late Brittany Murphy. Um, they're making out hot and heavy. He goes in for a little bit more passion and she says, nope, not tonight. And he's like, oh, come on, Jody, aren't you afraid to die a virgin? And she's like, yeah, it's right up there with, you know, global warming is one of my concerns. Right away, he is like, you know what? We should break up. We've been dating a year. It's not going well. Let's just see other people. She's kind of stunned as I guess I would be. But all of a sudden there's a car. We see some headlights pull up behind them. And all of a sudden there's a knock on the window. And who is it, Roger? Who is it? Fucking can- Candy Clark. <laughs> it's it's Academy Award nominee Candy Clark. Who we recent, not recently, but within, I don't know, within the time frame that we've been doing reviews. So not recently, but at one point we did have a guest appearance from Candy Clark in The Blob. Um, the Blob, the 1980s remake. So she's welcome there and she's always welcome here in our house. And uh, it was, it, it's a pleasure to see her. She's playing an alcoholic mother. She knocks it out of the park. She's one of the better elements of this film. Well, she asks Kenny for a cigarette. And immediately, this is when this is our first glimpse of the, the theme that runs through this film of adults blatantly flirting with these teenagers. Oh, my God. Because she is very flirtatious with Kenny. And he is very flirtatious back. To the point where even Jody is sitting there and can recognize it, right? Well, and not only that, but Jody was technically just dumped by this guy. And then he like looks out the window and starts like macking on her mom. And she's just sitting there with these big doe eyes full of tears. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very awkward way to introduce these characters. Kenny is not one of my favorite characters. When I talk about characters that I think are not written well because they have no consistency in their motivations. It is this one. This is a, if I had to, this is a prime example. If I was teaching a screenwriting class, Roger, and I was teaching, you know, how to be consistent with your character's motivations that don't change them. So it's jarring without any explanation. I would show 
this film and show Kenny because this is a prime example of a horribly written character. Troy, you know, I'm very happy that you and I seem to be uh, on the exact same page with a lot of elements of this film because 100%, I would say, I take it a step further. I would say Kenny is, in my opinion, one of the worst written uh, love interests of, of a genre character in general. Uh, he's he's detestable, but he's not, I don't think he's supposed to be. He is so horribly unlikable, and he does some really kind of shitty, awful things to Jody early on in the film. And then there's a point where I guess you're just supposed to like him again, but because he's been such an awful character, I don't give a fuck. I want this character to die. I want this character to be the killer or something because he is just painted to be just a really gross, awful person who treats Jody like shit. And I don't want to like him after this. Yeah. I think they thought he, I think they thought they were creating this like charming character that all the girls watching this movie were going to swoon over. And I'm sorry if you're swooning over this character, please go see a psychiatrist or a relationship counselor because <laughs> yeah you're in for a world of heartache if you think that's a, he's a good guy i feel as though they were trying to paint him to be a red herring but their way of doing that was making him just seem shitty seem unlikable and i think maybe that was in their minds enough to make this character suspect but all it did was just make him just seem like he's making a bunch of really bad choices that reflect poorly on him it doesn't ever make me think he's the killer or make me think that he's there's a potential for danger he just seems like a shitty person he is a shitty person i mean he's flirting with this mother right there uh when the he he does say your headlights are on and she's like oh thank you so she, the mother leaves uh mrs markham and jody looks at him and she's like is this good lie or good is this goodbye or good night you tell me and he's like well i'm leaving that up to you and she gets out of the car silently and slams the door to his, you know, he does tell her, don't slam the door. She slams it anyways. Uh, she goes back into her. She goes up to her house. The mom is out there smoking a cigarette and tells her that just to be quiet, that she made it home without her dad noticing that she's going to be late. She goes up to her bedroom, turns her light on, and her dad is there in her bedroom waiting for her. This sheriff... <laughs> immediately is like you're grounded and she's like why sixth graders have later curfews than i do and he's like well they're not the sheriff's daughter he's a killjoy i mean it makes sense eventually but right off the bat he's a real fucking killjoy um and it's funny because the the uh the contrast between the father and the mother the mom's like go have fun but don't don't tell your father be quiet as a mouse the mom's always drunk she's always she's chain smoking like i've never seen two complete opposites of such an extreme depiction of such opposite parentals but here we are but yeah he's a real killjoy but eventually that does kind of come into play a little bit so i wouldn't necessarily say that's poor writing so much as it's just an aggressive uh, introduction to the character um this does lead to him being called out uh to what is the reveal of these two bodies being discovered by by the, the by the lake and they do give us uh, a reveal of Stacy's body, which is propped up against like um like a fallen tree and nailed to this tree, and covered in blood. And 
it starts what is a trend of like very brief visuals or images of these uh, these body reveals. We see like flickers of them, brief shots of this, you know, of the blood, of, of the violence. You don't get the kills, but you do get some of the reveals. However, it's so brief and it it's so awkwardly edited that it does feel extremely anticlimactic. Like at least they're showing us something because the kill itself was just so paper thin. There was nothing to it at all, but it's just not enough to appease my palate as a horror fan. Yeah. The reveals of the dead bodies happen real quick. You're also forgetting that this is the second week in a row, Roger, that we get a lesbian. Yes. We love a lesbian. We love them. We love them. We had one last week. We got one this week. That's how I like uh, it. I like my women. <laughs> I like my women. Butches can be. <laughs> uh, yeah. So they find the bodies. Uh, you, you did mention you were talking about, you know, the relationship between Jody's parents. And I did just want to bring up before we move on. Do you notice that there's never a scene of them in this film interacting? Yeah. Isn't that weird? It is very weird. I, I have a note. I, just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to leave that. Un- unvisited because I, th- I think it's very interesting that there is no scene in this film of her parents actually interacting or having a conversation. Well, it's like they almost like they represent two parallel uh, different elements of, of Jody. Like, like the mom is very much like, go have fun, be free, be young. And the father's like, be safe, be careful. Don't do bad things. Like avoid danger at every cost, you know? Um, th- it is really, really, really strange how they wrote the relationship between the two parental figures. Because, yeah, there's nothing. You don't go a single moment with the two of them together. So Jody arrives at school the next day. It's a very Scream-like scene. If you remember the scene in Scream when the, when the gang arrives to school after Casey Becker has been killed, this is virtually the same scene. To the point where, you know, she's looking around and all the classmates are crying. People are reacting differently. And just when I thought that I could not like a male character in this film any less than I do Kenny, guess who shows up? You don't like Timmy? Fucking Timmy. Troy, oh, I no. can't stand Timmy. Uh, tr- that's one area where we disagree. Oh, I'll say that. Timmy is fucking annoying. When I, again, this kid, nobody talks like him. The way he speaks, unrealistic as fuck. I'm telling you that right now. Um, he's saying shit that I'm sorry, no junior in high school is going to say he is unsympathetic. Just, it's almost like they were like, oh, well we need a Gail Weathers character in this film. You know, somebody that can deliver sassy one-liners, but we don't want to copy scream that much. So let's make it a, let's make it a flaming homo high school boy that's a writer for the school newspaper how about that that'll work and we don't want to give him anything to do (laughs) here's my thing though here's why i'm gonna i'm gonna uh, speak on timmy's behalf Uh, yes okay i don't think any of the characters in this in this film are written well i i I just across the board i i do not think the dialogue for the younger characters were executed and in a way that were um at all believable in any way but with that, with Timmy, at least with Timmy, I feel that the the way they depicted this character, when you first see him, this character is like unabashedly queer. He's got eyeshadow. He's got a fur jacket. He's charismatic. And he might be obnoxious, sure, but 
I appreciate the fact that they went full gay. Like this character what is now they never say it. They don't say gay, but don't you tell me for a moment that this fucker ain't sucking dick in the oh, locker he, room. No, he's sucking dick in the locker room, he's sucking dick in the bathroom. However, that's to me, that's not enough to be a saving grace. Like, okay, wonderful. It's awesome to see representation, especially done so subtly, where it's not like, oh, he here's Timmy, he's the resident gay student oh he's the president of the lgbtq club here no it's very it's just that's how he is however it's just not enough for me because the character is so unlikable and i must say i think the actor in this role is really bad well and this leads into i think an issue and this is one of my biggest issues with the movie and i've already had plenty when you look at a film like scream urban legend i know what you did last summer you know, you've got you've always got a strong final girl, but she's always flanked and surrounded by a core central cast of individuals around her age range that really are what keep the story moving. And they are like layered, textured, developed human beings. They have personalities. They have, you know, something to them that that makes you want to see them survive the film or want you to, you know, experience more time with them on camera. Look at, you know, look at uh, Helen Shivers, for example. She wasn't the lead. She was the best friend. However, she fucking stole that show. She had charisma for days. In this movie, you've got Brittany Murphy, who is great, but then you got like a group of like, I guess what would be like the supporting players beneath her. And they are severely, severely underutilized. I don't know who is supposed to be a day player versus who's supposed to be her best friend. She has a, 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 another girl that comes into play who is like kind of there in a few moments as her best friend, but then she never comes back around in like pivotal sequences. And so I think one of the biggest problems with this movie and me not caring about a single thing that happens is because they do a horrible job of fleshing these characters out, giving them significant time on camera, making them feel like real authentic people. It's just not there. The supporting cast in this movie is so lame. Yeah. And underutilized, like you said, there's just, it's really hard to, care about any of them and you know bless timmy's gay heart i just i'm not a fan of the character and thank god he doesn't stick around a lot uh, and this but this is a prime example of what you're talking about because this character's introduction in this particular pivotal scene where he is telling uh jody that rod and stacy were murdered the night before like that's a pivotal scene she doesn't know that her dad didn't tell her you think that he's going to be such a huge part of the film and he's not at all yeah, and I don't think that does him any favors. I guess, you know, come in full circle on the topic of Timmy, because we won't get too into the character. He doesn't fucking do anything. Uh, but, you know, yeah, he's obnoxious. Yeah, he really doesn't serve much of a purpose. But I blame that more on the script than anything. Yeah, and like I said, I just think the, I don't I don't think the actor is, delivers his lines pretty terribly in the film as well. So we we get a scene in Mr. Marliston's class. Where again, it is akin to some other scenes that we've seen in other movies where these kids have just found out that their classmates have been murdered and they are venting, they're, you know, expressing their griefs in various ways. 
Mr. Marleston is played by Jay Moore. We have to recognize that. Again, these kids, this entire class of kids are all little shits. They're bastards. None of them are likable. Um, and it's sort of like Saved by the Bell, where like all of the kids that all of the kids that you meet in the in the in the show or the movie just happen to be in this one class together. But you just get all these different reactions. Mr. Marleston's asking, you know, the class, it's, hey, it's really great if you guys share your feelings. And there is a character, Heather, who is very upset and starts crying because once in grade school, she told Rod to fuck off and die. The kids start laughing at her. He asks Mark, who apparently was friends with Rod, does he have anything to say? Nope. Asks Heather, do you have anything to say? And she's like, well, I just hope at times like this, there's a heaven. And then we get blonde fucking Cindy, Cindy Roger, who says lame. She wants the killer to get the electrocuted. Do you know who Cindy is? We've actually reviewed a film with her as the lead final girl not too long ago. Oh my God. Remind me. It's Kristen Miller from the pool. Oh, Kristen Miller from the pool. How's she doing these days? (laughs) Well, apparently I'm, I'm assuming she's, Based off her character in this film, she's probably rode hard and put away wet because she sure knows about dick. I mean, she's like the go-to girl for advice on how to fuck and suck. Yeah, and that's all she is. And this, (laughs) falling back on what I said before about these characters, these these supporting individuals being severely underutilized um, and underdeveloped, that is all the character of Cindy has she has a few moments of being kind of a bitch a few moments about talking about how to fuck and then she doesn't do anything else she's not she never really does anything to move the story i feel like they fell into what they had realized scream developed as being like kind of the archetypes the trope archetypes of what the characters that you need to have for the genre um and and then they just recreated them because they do feel like clones of characters we've seen in other movies that did it better this almost reminds me of the uh classroom scene in scream 2 when they're discussing um sequels because remember that scene is right after uh maureen uh evans and phil stevens get killed in the opening scene of scream 2 and you get this scene with uh randy and cc sarah michelle geller's character in the film class and they're discussing whether violence creates killers right and they're somehow get on the subject of sequels and the class kind of starts going at each other's throats this this scene reminds me of that particular scene in scream 2 because what it ends up is the yeah the the class starts kind of getting arguing with each other you know to the point where like ben is calling cindy basically cindy freud and asks her what she's done in her life besides sleep through with the entire school then you get the little you get the little chubby kid. Did you notice the little chubby kid from Full House is in this is in this cl- film? Yeah, he gets uh, he gets some ass. He gets later some ass movie. later. He's a little yeah. So he's in the class. I mean, but these kids in this classroom are so fucking unlikable. Like Ben is like, I want to know if he cut their po- body parts out and removed any limbs because if he didn't, then he gets a big thumbs down from me. I mean, who says that sort of shit? Well, and I think this presents one of the biggest issues with the script in every sense of the word or the term. It writes for shock. The script does not write for for coherency. It does not write for character development. It writes for shock 
first and foremost. So you get so many moments where things do feel really inauthentic because they think they're trying to do things to uh, make people say things that are going to, you know, shock the audience or do certain actions that happen, certain things that characters do that just end up reading really uncomfortable or awkward. But I think their goal was to be shocking, but it just fails. The dialogue is just cringeworthy at points. Sheriff Jody's dad, Sheriff Markin, comes into the class to tell them, you know, hey, two of your classmates were murdered. You know, you might want to take some precautions. Don't do shit alone. All that fun stuff. Um, I do want to also point out that at uh, one point when we were introduced to the principal, uh, just before this moment, there is the scene where the principal's uh, assistant, I, I believe her name is Diana. There's this moment where <laughs> she walks the sheriff into his office and she's like, somebody's here to see you, principal. And she like lets the sheriff in and she like does everything with these like dreamy bedroom eyes that are very suspicious. <laughs> and I'm like, Diana, who the fuck are you? And we never see her again. She never comes back into play. And I'm like, are you trying to make this broad feel like a red herring? Because she's definitely doing something mysterious over here. I don't know why she's being so exaggerated with her eyes, but uh, you never see her again. Because it's Sean Bean. Oh, Sean Bean. We forgot to mention Sean Bean plays Sheriff Markin. I mean, I'd give him bedroom eyes. Mm-hmm. He's looking pretty good in this. Yeah. It's lunchtime now, and Jody and is it Sandy? Is she with Sandy? I'm assuming. I can't. There's Sandy, Heather, fucking Cindy. I don't know. I'm, I think it's Sandy she's with, right? Forgettable friend number four. Yes, whatever. She's. They're watching Kenny making out with this other girl. Blatantly, like he's doing it because he knows that they're watching, right? Yeah. And yeah. Sand and Sandy's like, "Oh, don't worry, she's not gonna fuck him. Who's gonna want? Who wants to fuck her?" Jody's like, "You know what? I am done dating, but you, Miss Sandy, all you do during lunch is sit there and watch Mark eat, and we'd get these sh- random shots of this Mark character eating in the most." awkward weird ways possible like he's eating potato chips like he's a dog like going into the potato chip bowl and picking them out with his mouth and eating them that way later in the movie you see them smoking so much weed though Troy. i just think these kids are perpetually oh, stoked but he's i'm like how do you find that attractive because apparently sandy likes Mark because of the way he eats. So Jody, Jody makes him go over or makes Sandy go over and sit next to Mark. And he continues to eat weird and he is ignoring Sandy. I think that's funny too. He completely is oblivious that she's even there because he's, because he's so stoned. (laughs) Is that what it's supposed? I I don't know. I guess. Okay. There's a scene of them later on in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. I really think that's what it is. I think that these guys are just fucking ripped and she goes over there and she's like, She's like, what do you think? And he's like, I think these ribs, they're fucking great. Like, or whatever he says. I will also say, listen, like, at the end of the day, Mark can get it. I think he's probably the best looking guy in the group. Oh, he's adorable. He's adorable. He adorable. And another thing, I'm struggling to give this movie some compliments at this point, and I do want to say this. For all of the bad writing and all of the horrible dialogue, one thing that they do get right is teenagers are gross, disgusting, uncomfortable 
things. They're just teenagers are disgusting. There's pieces, little pieces of shit. Uh, <laughs> but they do nail like this whole like lunchroom sequence with the guys like you know making like weird monuments out of their food and fucking with each other. That feels kind of authentic to me. At least like the lunchroom scene does play out in a way that I'm like, yeah, they really nailed the fact that I hate teenagers so much. And they, they like, they nailed that for me. Well, and another thing I think they did well is casting teenagers to look like teenagers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, none of these characters look like they're 40 or 30. Like we see in most slasher films, right? These, these look like teenagers, which I appreciated. And in fact, I think many of them probably were teenagers at the time of filming this. So in the meantime, when, when they're sitting there at the table with Mark, Annette comes in and attacks this guy, like starts beating the shit out of him. And he's calling her like a cocksucker and telling her that she has white stuff on her lips and she's just going to town. And the, the principal has to pull her away. And, and Mr. Marcus Martison pulls the dude away. And Jody's like, what is that all about? The one dude, who is it? Ben? Ben is like, oh, well, he went around school telling her, telling everyone that Annette gave him a Hummer. And Jody's like, well, did she? He says, no. She thinks fellatio is a Shakespeare character. Again, I don't know what teenager would use fellatio as a word to describe a blowjob. They would just say suck dick. I like that Annette busts into this lunchroom and like straight up starts like like kickboxing this guy. Like she she is kicking this guy's ass and they they they, they're fucking brawling he's just fighting her right back this poor young woman this guy dylan just railing on her and they're just full-on fighting and then the principal gets in on it they start beating up on him too it's the most violent violent thing in the movie (laughs) it is but but again they try to introduce her but why okay after this scene there is a shot of the killer sharpening his blade on a sharpener a scene, a shot we've seen many times before in many different films. And then we cut to that evening and Annette is home alone. The same girl that just beat the shit out of this guy in the cafeteria. You missed one very pivotal thing, Troy, that I need to acknowledge. The killer, the killer is sharpening the blades, wearing a full set of red acrylic nails. This, this is a standout aspect that I really want to just shine some light on. The killer in this movie has some great fucking nails, blood red nails, never, within the later scenes, never seems to be wearing gloves, which I would think to be problematic for the killer um, because they are killing people and their fingers are just fully exposed. So these hands are all over these blades with these goddamn red acrylic fingernails, just willy nilly. Uh, I, I don't understand how this isn't something that comes into play. I would think there'd be fingerprints all over this joint. Well, he hasn't got caught yet, so he's just going to keep going. He goes to Annette, Annette's home alone. She gets a knock on the door. She goes to the door and is like, hello, who's there? And she's like, hello, it's Laura Lee. You hear this voice on the other end that's saying, hello, it's Laura Lee Sherman. I'm here to see your mom. And Annette's like, well, she's not home. And the voice is like, well, she was expecting me. Can I leave a note? And Annette's like, uh, sure. But she's, she thinks she's being smart because she leaves the chain on the door and only opens it a crack, right? And immediately her head is grabbed and smashed against the door frame a couple times. 
there is zero suspense, zero buildup to this scene at all. It's bad enough. We don't even know who Annette is as a character, but they, they, the, the way this is rushed is pretty unsatisfying. Well, the thing is, at this point, is now this is what ends up being the second death, and it is the second occasion in which an attack is initiated, and we don't, it's not like we don't even see the kill, we don't see the whole process of the killer, like, entering the house, chasing the character, beating them down. Like, you see her subdued by, like, getting her head banged in the door, and then it, like, goes to slow motion and cuts to black. You don't see anything to do with the kill whatsoever. And it feels, for me as a viewer, I feel very deprived at this point because when you're promoting this as a slasher movie, okay, I get it. You're going to go PG-13. Sure. Cut out the knife stabbing into the torso. Cut out the the person getting decapitated. Do what you got to do. However, if you're not going to show me even the buildup to it, what's the fucking point? Why bother? Exactly, exactly. And I remember this being a scene or Annette's death scene in the original script uh, was much, much, much gorier. And I think you can still find it online. In fact, I remember a lot of the talk around this film when it came out was this particular scene being cut so heavily because her original death scene was was so gruesome, but they cut it completely. So if you want to know what really happens to her in the in the film, I think if you just go on a Google search and type in Cherry Falls original script, you'll find it. And you can read what this what this film was supposed to be and what it turned into. And I think it's really interesting to do that if you're into like script, you know, scripts and whatnot. But yeah, it just cuts. And then we get a, a shot of her parents arriving home. They go inside. Again, another scream similarity because this this scene is very similar to the scene when Casey Becker's parents come home and they're running around the house calling her name same thing Annette's parents they realize the doors open there's she's not there the mother's running around screaming Annette Annette and then runs into the living room and sees blood dripping looks up and has the exact same scream that Casey's Becker's Casey Becker's mother does when she sees uh Casey hanging from the tree we don't see what she's screaming at initially because then it cuts to black again and then it comes back and the sheriff and his lesbian deputy are there and we get one of those real quick, real quick flash shots of Annette be basically hogtied to the chandelier in her living room. It is so quick that if you blink, you will miss it. And that is not an exaggeration. Yeah, it is. Very, again, anticlimactic. You're really hoping, you're yearning for, at this point, some blood and gore. And you're getting such a minuscule amount that it does feel like the film is kind of almost like leading you astray with promising that being a slasher. It does almost feel like it's it's um almost like an episode of like the X-Files or something. Like it doesn't even feel like you're watching a slasher at this point because the way they're editing it just feels so lackluster. Um, and, and again, the word deprived, I feel very deprived when I watch this movie because it's not like they just cut the, the, the kill sequences with the actual violence. They cut everything around them. And when they do give you a moment showing something, it's so brief that it just it doesn't even give you the full scope of what happened. I couldn't tell you how this girl died. I couldn't tell you 
what the killer did to actually kill her. I know he knocked her out by beating her head in the door, but I don't know what he did to kill her. And she's tied to a chandelier. How did he, how did he get her up? How do you hog tie someone to a chandelier? That, that would, to me, that would take a long time. So you're pretty confident that in the time it's going to take you to what, get a ladder, carry a body up the ladder. Think of the logistics of this, Roger. She's hog tied to a chandelier. How can one person do that? And then you don't know when her parents are coming home. You don't know who could become. You're going to take that long of time to hog tie someone to a chandelier. That just seems so unrealistic to me. It was done for shock value, but it fails completely because we don't see anything. We see it. We see a half second of it. So why don't, why don't you put the, make the body reveal something a little bit more realistic than having the audience believe that one person was able to get this teenage, big burly teenage girl who just beat the shit out of a guy. This isn't some little four foot scrawny cheerleader. She just beat the shit out of a guy in the cafeteria. You're trying to tell me one person got her up there and did that. That's why I said earlier, Troy, that a lot of this movie I think is written for the shock factor and not for the actual plausibility. And this happens multiple times over the course of the movie certain things happen where like it might be cool in concept or it might have worked well on paper when you're thinking about it but then when you think of the actual like rationale behind it it just doesn't fucking make sense and that goes from you know this body reveal to plot twist to character arcs all over the place this whole movie is just kind of a mess of of poorly developed storyline and execution and this leads to one of the most uncomfortable scenes in a slasher film i've ever seen mm-hmm. do you know what i'm talking about yep okay so we go back to jody's house with her father obviously he knows there's something up so they are practicing their self-defense methods and he's teaching her how to be able to defend herself as someone grabs her from behind and what she needs to do and there's a moment where You know, he's acting like he attacks her and she does her little flip and grabs him and they fall to the floor and he falls on top of her and they are literally an inch from each other's face and they linger there for probably a good five seconds staring lovingly almost, I'm not even going to say almost sexually into each other's eyes where you, where I, first time I saw this, I really thought they were going to start kissing. I don't know the, I don't know why this was included because it goes nowhere, but there is this thread throughout this film that is very blatant and very uncomfortable that there are sexual feelings between Jody and her father. We missed it earlier, but there is a scene when her father gets called to the um to the falls in the beginning of the film where when um Rod and Stacy are found that Jody actually wakes up in the middle of the night and goes to her window and is almost like in this trance like state and looks out the window and says very sensually as she sees her dad leaving to get in his cop car daddy and then looks into the camera so what what is the what is what is the purpose of having this element in the film? Troy, that ain't the only time. There's a point later in the film, and we'll we'll revisit when we get to it, where she's watching her father in a scenario with a crowd, and things are going awry. And same thing, it cuts to her face. She goes, 
oh, daddy. And it's extremely sensual. And you're absolutely right. I, I have a big note about that being a very uncomfortable thread woven throughout the course of this film. And again, I wonder if it's something that got neutered in editing. I wonder if the, this whole Oedipus complex that exists between some of these adult figures and some of these teens was meant to be something that was more explored. However, it's it's such a loose thread, such a minor element in this final cut of the film that it just feels extremely uncomfortable uh, and very much just kind of shoehorned, shoehorned in there for the element of discomfort and nothing more. Because yeah, when he falls on top of her, I mean, there is palpable sexual energy and it, it I, I don't understand what purpose it's supposed to serve. But anyways, that's the moment that gets him out of the, the house to go find the body. But uh, it, that that vibe, that feeling lingers with you. Because the, throughout the rest of the movie, all you can think about whenever these parents are with these kids now is, are they trying to fuck? It just, it just leaves a very uncomfortable taste in my mouth. And I'm not a prude by any means. But, I mean, this is father and daughter. You know, it'd be, a, I, I, and I don't even want to say that, but I could see like, it'd be a little bit different if the plot element was like, he was her stepfather. Okay. But that's not, this is her real father. Not saying it's okay to sleep with your stepfather. I mean, if he looks like Michael Bean, maybe, but, but you know what I mean? This is a real father and daughter and the sexual energy and, and chemistry that is sort of placed on these characters very purposely is definitely uncomfortable. And that's specifically Roger why I made sure to mention earlier that there are no scenes between the sh the sheriff and his wife <laughs> I mean think about it that I think that's very telling I just I don't know the purpose why it's even yeah. included in the film when it goes nowhere you know it's not like it's even a part of like the killer's reveal motivation motivation reveal it's it just makes no sense it's like like you said i'm really starting to get what you're going at where you're saying that so much stuff was included in this film for the uncomfortable factor and and that sacrificed a cohesive plot very much so and that, yeah that's absolutely what i was leaning into without like wanting to give too much away earlier is i think that they you know this movie's called cherry falls and it very much explores um the developing sexuality within a lot of these teenage characters. And it goes a lot of different directions with it, but I really feel like they just threw a bunch of shit at the wall, hoping it would stick. And a lot of it does not stick. And this element right here does not stick for me as a viewer whatsoever. And let's continue this thought because something else is about to come up here that only, only heightens my feelings of, of discomfort. Uh, Cause we already talked about, you know, the body discovery. There's this whole moment where the sheriff goes, he sees the body briefly on the ceiling. That leads to a sequence where he goes to the, the morgue. He sees Annette's body. I am surprised here that for a film that was so willing to cut out so much of the violence and the gore, they still felt pretty okay with showing what is basically full frontal female nudity, uh, breasts and all, as her as this girl's body is you know laid out in front of them to to examine. You see her chest and you basically almost see her her vagina. I mean, like you get a full length torso shot as they're looking at this body. But basically they talk about the fact here that all of the victims thus far were virgins. There were no signs of any form of penetration, sexual penetration whatsoever. And this moment, A, introduces the motive of the killer. 
the killer has carved the words virgin into the thighs of both uh, Annette and the girl at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, if he couldn't be more obvious, it's a yeah, virgin. I'm just saying that's that's how they that, that's that's what led them to to realize that the killer was targeting virgins because both the girls had the word virgins carved into their thigh, and then he was able to tell based just on that evening alone that Rod was did not have sex that evening either. So just making the assumption that he must be a virgin, and that's the running theme of the killer so so just so we're clear that that's how they got to the idea that the killer is targeting virgins is he very blatantly carves the word virgin into their thighs and yes roger this leads into the next super uncomfortable moment between father and daughter go for it there is a conversation that takes place between the sheriff and jody where he enters her bedroom wakes her up from her sleep and proceeds to start probing her about her sex life with her boyfriend. And I mean, first, right off the bat, imagine if you as a teenager, you're asleep and your father walks into your bedroom and starts asking you this shit. I mean, I can't imagine anything more comfortable. I would not answer a single question he had, (laughs) but she willingly starts answering these questions. And she's like, no, I'm not sexually active, blah, blah, blah. You know, she starts, you know, telling him what she has and has not done. And then he asks her, well, could you go further than you you have? And and I'd be like, excuse me, sir. Um, I beg your pardon. What are you asking me, your daughter? But she, she, she basically confirms, no, I am a virgin. Then she says to him, are you embarrassed? What did she say? She says, are you disappointed? Are you disappointed that I'm are you a disa- virgin? Are you disappointed? And again, the, the, the Oedipus complex, the sexual vibes. This is a moment where I would think if I was watching a porn, it would be a gross porn, but if I was watching a porn, this would be the moment where the dad would be like, well, let's change that. And then he'd, he'd unbutton her blouse and take out her ample breast. Um, <laughs> that is what this moment feels like because he is going way too far with the probing questions. I understand the motivation. Okay, virgins are getting killed. But there's a time in a fucking place, not when your daughter's laying in her bed <laughs> asleep. Well, no. And, and then he also like, after she's, after she asks if he's disappointed, he's like, no. And then he proceeds to like, start petting her cheek, petting her cheek. And he's like, Oh, you're still my little girl. Yeah. I mean, th- these two are straight up fucking, I don't care what you say. These two have a creepy sexual chemistry that has no business existing between a parent and child especially when it leads nowhere and it has nothing to do with the plot of the film yeah definitely just these vibes and it, it, and it, i don't know it just gives it gives, just gives me a very uncomfortable feeling the rest of the film and not for the right reasons it's a slasher film of course you're supposed to be uncomfortable but there's just something about the vibe between Jody and her father that is just I don't know. It it makes you want to go like, I don't know, wash your eyes out or something. The next day, Sheriff tells the deputy that he wants to set up an emergency meeting with all of the teenagers' parents because he wants to reveal to them the killer's trademark, that the killer's targeting virgins. She very smartly tells him, uh, that goes against everything that we learn because you do not want to reveal things like that. Because it could lead to false confessions. 
And how are we going to know if we have the real killer or not? Those, there's little details that we should keep secret, which she is 100% right. Um, that is not something I would necessarily as a sheriff go around telling the entire town because, you know, you do want to keep some things secret, but he insists. He's like, I'm going to do it because if it could save one more, one life, it's going to be worth it. That evening, Jody goes into Mr. Marliston's class to give him her T.S. Eliot paper. What time is this? This looks like it's like nine o'clock at night. What the fuck is he still doing there? And why is she there? It's pitch black. It is so confusing. Well, yeah, it is evening and nobody is in the building. Yeah, and she's going to give him her T.S. Eliot paper? Like, do, couldn't you hand that in the next day during class? Again, it's a, it's, a, it's a moment, Roger, so that we can get even more sexual tension between an adult and a child in this film. Because she starts reciting some of T.S. Eliot's poetry to him. It's very dark. The, the, the poetry she's reciting is very dark. And he happens to ask her, um, or she asks him, do you really think people are like that? You know, lonely and dry, dry souls. He's like, oh, poor you. Yeah, I heard you broke up with Kenny. And she like yells at him. She's like, what's that have to do with it? You think all my thoughts are based off my one year wasted with Kenny Ascot? And he's like, uh, oh, I'm sorry. You know, and she's like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I yelled at you. And then it leads to a scene where she says she thinks she sees someone in the hallway. Oh, my God. And they go out. (laughs) They go out. They go out and explore the hallway, leading to really nothing except him finding a cigarette butt on the floor. And he looks at it. He bends down, kind of touches it. It looks like it was freshly put out. And they walk away. And as they walk away, we do, we do see a foot in frame that is never really explained. Whose foot is it? <laughs> who, exactly. It was good. It's never explained whose foot it is. There's another point in this movie where it does the exact same thing, and we're going to get there as well. But they go back to the hallway, and he's like, well, Jody, I have to go to this meeting your dad um, called for the town. And she's like, well, Mr. Marliston, can we talk again sometime? He's like, sure. She looks at him. She's like, no, I mean, really talk just me and you. Why is this girl trying to fuck all of the adults in her life? (laughs) There must be some deep issues with her because she is literally trying to fuck every, every adult male. So this whole moment in, in the classroom is extremely awkward. The only thing that kind of saves it is Brittany Murphy's performance because she is, consistently capable. One of the things I think that is impressive about this film is even in the most awkward of moments, Brittany Murphy still manages to bring a believability and a realism to her character that really does not belong because this, the story is just fucking nonsense down to what you just said, you know, the, the, the facts presented, this is an evening <laughs> sequence in an empty school She has no reason to be there. Why is she there? Why is she talking to this teacher? It doesn't make sense. Whoever wrote this, I don't think they've actually lived in society or or interacted with people. Or maybe they were, maybe they were like a private homeschool uh, taught by their parents. I don't know. Didn't experience culture in a high school. They shouldn't be writing these scenes because they all feel very unnatural. But, um, the dialogue here is just very forced. Uh, it, it, 
it seems like it's solely written for the purpose of getting them to detect somebody in the hallway. Everything that happens here feels very, again, not authentic. Um, I don't understand why they're trying to create this chemistry, this relationship between her and this teacher, because it doesn't seem to have existed at any point prior. But now all of a sudden they seem to have this like relationship. And it all builds up to this moment where she, yes, she hears something in the hallway. This is like the big suspenseful reveal. But it's not like you as the viewer are treated to seeing what Jody sees. It's all done... Uh, from angles of um, the two characters in dialogue, when she turns over and sees something, you don't see her perspective or her POV or whatever it is that she sees. We don't see it. We don't know who she saw or what happened. So it launches into this moment of suspense in which Mr. Marlston is like, Jody, stay here. No, stay here. It's, it's treated like a very serious, suspenseful moment where he thinks that there could be some element of danger, but nothing has happened up to this point to imply that like yes people have died but why are we to think in the middle of this high school between these characters that there's any reason for there to be an element of fear or for him to feel like he needs to protect her just because you saw somebody in the hallway there's about to be a parent teacher conference like okay there are probably plenty of people within this building at this point. So I don't understand why they use this as, as a means to transition into this moment of suspense because it does not land. And there is that whole moment where they find the cigarette butt in the, um, in the lunchroom and there is a mysterious, mysterious foot, but yeah, you know, it is never ever revealed who it is that's watching them. And when you find out the finale, the big reveal, the grand reveal of who the killer is, this does not make any sense. Whoever it is that's hiding from them, whatever is going on, it does not make any sense. I guess they just wanted to insert some tension in the film, in the film that otherwise lacks it. That, and I think they wanted to give us reason to think that the character of Mr. Marlston is possibly being hunted as well or targeted or caught up as a victim of the situation because this is very much trying to imply that there's a reason for him to be scared as well and wanting to protect her um and and if you know the outcome of the movie it just this this does not make any sense whatsoever this does lead to the parent uh meeting so the sheriff is there all the parents are in the auditorium or the gym the principal is concerned he approaches the sheriff and's like hey what the, what are you doing we can't tell parents that the killer's targeting virgins or we're going to have a fuck fest on our hands and sheriff's like well it's better than having a bunch of dead teenagers so he goes into the um gymnasium with all the parents and starts the meeting tells them that they have found a common link and that all of the victims were virgins of course, this does not sit well with the parents. In the meantime, Jody is upstairs on the second level, look, looking down, watching her dad conduct this meeting. You had mentioned this. And Timmy shows up behind her, wanting to get the scoop. Now, the only thing I can think of, Roger, is maybe we're supposed to assume it was Timmy that she saw in the hallway, but we've never seen Timmy smoke a cigarette. And the shoes that he was wearing don't match the shoes that we saw. So I don't know. But anyways, the parents are upset and they get into a big old brawl because one of the parents makes a joke that I thought was kind of funny, but 
you know, because one of the fathers is like, what, what do I tell my, what do I do? Keep my daughter locked up in the basement. And the other parents like, well, I, you don't have to worry about that. And it just causes a big old brawl. And this is the scene where, like you said, Jody looks down and she's like, oh, daddy. Very sensual. Un- unnecessarily sensual. <laughs> yeah. Jody or Timmy borrows Jody's cell phone because he's going to make a call because he's gonna, he hears, they both hear that the killer's targeting virgins. And so Timmy's like, oh God, I got my scoop. It's going to be Hy- Hyman, Hyman mayhem. So he takes her phone. He goes off to make a call. Uh, when the meeting is over, she goes to look for him to try to find his her phone. She can't find him. She's looking all over when she hears her phone ring coming from a locker. And she goes to open the locker to get her phone. And poor Timmy is stuffed inside with his throat slit. The character of Timmy, it really is shocking how little they give this character to do. Because he's presented to be one of her closest confidants, her best friends. But you literally have the introduction scene where he meet, he sees her at the school and this moment, and that is it. It is an, it is an example of really I think weak writing uh, characterization. It does the character no justice, um, and this whole the only positive element of of anything to do with this character is his body reveal is probably one of the better looking gore effects in the movie, and that ain't saying much. But, I mean, at least he's bloody and gross. And, B, he is, this moment, this this reveal, is what launches into what I would say to be the best moment in the film, which is a rather elaborate and well-executed chase sequence. Yes, this chase sequence is very well done. It's actually the best sequence in the entire film. It's probably one of the better chase scenes to come out of a late nineties, early two thousand slasher film. I, I think it's right up there probably with Sarah Michelle Geller's chasing. And I know what you did last summer to a much shorter scale, but I mean, this gives you a, everything you could ask for in a chase scene. Once she finds Timmy's body, she goes to run out of the room and the killer is outside the door, raises the knife. She slams the door I mean, this chasing, he's chasing her down the hall and this killer is sprinting. This isn't a killer that's like walking casually after their victim, sprinting after her. That's what f- sells this for me, to be honest, Troy. The the main element of fear for me, because the killer is not scary. I'm going to put it out there right now. I do not find this killer intimidating. What I do find scary is the sheer speed and overall just viciousness in their approach. Oh yeah. Sprinting after they round the corner so fast that they both fall and slide onto the ground. I mean, this is a very physical chase scene too, which is, I, I like that. But as she gets up, he grabs her and l- literally throws her, slams her head first into the lockers. Her, I mean, to the point where her head hits the locker and she bounces off onto the floor unconscious. Um, he takes her into what looks like a giant, like science classroom. And is getting ready to carve her thigh with the word virgin when she wakes up and kicks him in the head. Another thing that I got to give Brittany Murphy some credit for, aside from just how physical she gets within the sequence, is also the girl's got to scream. I mean, this girl has a blood-curdling scream. One of the best. So that only amplifies this moment that much more. And the thing I find very enjoyable about this whole chase sequence is it's kind of broken up into two parts. You have the first part, the pursuit, where he chases her throughout the halls of the high school. 
And that and that is suspenseful and that is intense. It's the first time in this film I have felt any element of fear or uh, or or suspense whatsoever. But then after the killer knocks her out, she comes to, kicks the killer in the gut, and it launches into a, a second act of this chasing that is even more visceral and more intense. And she climbs up on top of this table and she's like a she's like a monkey up on top of a counter, throwing anything she can get her hands on at this killer. I gotta say, one of the best elements of the character of Jody, who is at times a very awkwardly written character, is when she goes into survival mode. Anything, she'll do anything to get the fuck out of there. She is a survivor. I think she's very well played in all of these moments that include her and the killer. Oh, she is a, yeah, she definitely fights back. She's up on that counter hoisting uh, beakers down at him, everything. She can, a, a globe. Finally to the point where she grabs a, a knife and very smartly slices a rope that causes a giant plastic shark to fall and slam into the killer, knocking him into a glass enclosure. What school has a life-size shark replica? I don't know, but I want it. I need yeah, it. Absolutely. I need I it agree. for my library. It needs to be in there. But he this is and, the, and this is the first time, Roger, that you clearly hear this killer grunt. Oh, yeah. And it is a and it is obviously a man. Yeah, at this point you definitely know that the killer is an individual who is in Dressed drag as a woman. Yeah, that's another thing we really haven't discussed. That the killer's disguise. The killer is wearing is dressed as a woman, generally wearing a very tight black dress ensemble with the black wig, like you mentioned, the red nails, the 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 boots, the the high heel boots, everything. Dressed as a woman, but it's obviously, especially in this particular scene, it's not a woman because you very clearly hear him grunt. I want to take a moment, now that we've seen the killer clearly, I really want to just take a second to talk about why I think this killer does not work. And I think, I I remember even when I enjoyed this movie the first time I saw it, I remember finding the killer to be something that threw me off. Um, And it's not because it's it's a man dressed as the opposite gender. It's, It's not anything to do with that because i we've had twists and shocking aspects of like that before on, on this podcast what really throws me off is that the, the costume itself is just not intimidating uh you've got a sexy little black dress wearing a jacket okay these high-heeled boots and then you have this long black wig with a gray streak and i guess i am supposed to believe as the viewer that the hair is constantly covering the face enough to keep it like you know so that the features are not visible but there is no way that that killer would be able to sprint with that wig completely covering their face uh hiding all features at all times there's no way they'd have control over that it just isn't reasonable it doesn't make any sense and there is a scene coming up here in one of the next scenes where you have her you have Jody doing like a, a sketch of who the killer is, of who attacked her. And she has a sketch of a woman. She's convinced it's a woman. And even if the hair was like, you know, somewhat blocking the features or making it so that you couldn't see the face clearly, you cannot look at this body type, this build on this individual and tell me that this is 
a a woman. This is clearly like a masculine build. It just doesn't make sense and it doesn't land. And because of that, it makes the killer seem very implausible and thus kind of strips away some of the scare factor. So between having this like very like just like not scary appearance and also making it very unreasonable for this costume to just work in general, I do not find this killer to be a strong aspect of the movie. No, and it's it's curious that they went with that particular disguise for the killer. I mean, it sort of makes sense when you find out the motive, but then it sort of doesn't because, I mean, we, we will get there. We're getting to the end. Uh, Jody runs out and she runs into her dad. He goes into the science room. The killer is obviously gone. We get the scene with Jody at the police station giving a composite sketch, which to me, it just looks like a face with black hair covering it (laughs) like there is no distinguishable features on this police sketch but the father immediately uh takes this and faxes it to the principal and is like hey i got something i'm faxing you look at that tell me who that is you you know who that is tell me that's not her and the principal's like who it's like laura lee sherman and the principal's like oh god damn you're losing it nobody's heard from her in 25 years Jody, in the meantime, has picked up the phone and is listening. And her dad sees this and hangs up on the principal and comes in and, and yells at her. It's like, were you listening to my calls? And she's like, no, I was just trying to call mom. He's like, oh, okay. I did like that little moment. I, I will say like when he comes in and he's like, are you trying to like, were well, you listening into things? What did you hear? And she's like, no, no, I was just trying to call mom and I couldn't figure out how to get the second line. Like that's, that is played off. Very in a very realistic way, which is rare in this movie. A lot of the th- the dialogue is not believable. So this was one moment where I was like, okay, that's plausible. I buy it. And then Tatum, no, I mean Sandy, but <laughs> this is a very Tatum scene from Scream, if you know what I'm talking about. Sandy comes to the police station, much like Tatum, the scene where Tatum comes to the police station to get Sydney. She, she comes to get Jody. And ba- and basically reveals that the uh, group of st- all the students are planning to lose their virginity that evening, and there it's a popular cherry party. She calls it a hymen holocaust. Again, I don't know. I don't know many. <laughs> I don't know many teenager teenage girls that rev- that re- that refer to their you know v- vaginas or whatever as hymens. Uh, I just don't. I would just it just again it, it's awkward dialogue like that. I feel like this script was written by horny, like, I don't know, Russian people and then translated into English. Men, too. Like, I don't think there's a single woman who had to have their hands on this dialogue because it is just so not how people talk, let alone how teenagers talk. Um, And yet, like, the whole thing with Sandy, like, and I kind of brought this up earlier with these characters. They're trying to recreate the molds that we've seen in all these other movies that did it so much better. But Sandy has so like little presence, so little impact. She spends so little time with Jody that when she's there, I just don't care. You know, she's not in any way a character who feels... Um, like she has impact on the plot or what's happening, which is a shame because with these movies, like a lot of times the core group of friends are just so pivotal. The the, the teens in this movie, aside from Jody and her boyfriend, have really nothing to do other than this goddamn Hyman Holocaust. It's an orgy. 
They're having a massive orgy at the Donkey Hill Hunting Lodge, which is abandoned. And um, apparently all the kids are okay with it. They're all okay with it. Everyone's going. And it's a big to-do. Yeah, it's they're all excited about it. Uh, Jody's mom shows up to take her home. But she says she wants to stay. She wants to go to school. Um, the dad doesn't think that's a good idea. But Jody's like, I just want to be with my friends at this point. And deputy lesbian is like, I'll keep an eye on her eagerly. And then smiles very flirtily at her. So now here's another adult. Another Did you adult catch that, that though? Or is that kid? just me? No, Did you're you right. That? She's like, you're absolutely I'll right. Keep, I'll keep an eye on her. And then she smiles very seductively at Jody. I'm like, Oh my God. Now, the lesbians are at it too. Come on. Jody goes to school and she runs into Kenny now. Who again, remember everything that this character has done. He broke up with her. He blatantly kissed her or kissed another girl in front of her. Now he's saying he loves her, wants her back, and wants her to go to the party with him tonight. She says, I can't because I told my dad I would go right home. He's like, don't make this about your dad. Come with me. He's very persistent. She says she'll think about it. And he skips away all happily. She says she might go. In the meantime, deputy, the deputy woman is behind them watching the whole thing unfold. Jody needs to not give this pig the time of day. Why is she? Why is she? Yeah. Why is she even entertaining? He's gross. He's so gross. And now he's trying to fuck her like immediately after she was attacked. Just not even 24 hours prior. And he he wants to fuck her. Basically, I think he wants to just fuck her because she's a virgin. But again, here's a scenario where like, I don't know if they're writing this so that we suddenly find him like likable or endearing. Is he maybe like, I don't know, making a turn and now he's a good character. If that was their goal, they really fail. Like severely they fail because this dialogue just makes him sound all the worse. Like he's encouraging her to sneak out, encouraging her not to listen to her father, the sheriff. Let's keep in mind, this girl was just violently assaulted. Why would you not prioritize that? Why would you not say, oh, you're right. You know what? You're right. You're probably suffering, I don't know, some PTSD trauma after this attempted murder. You take your time. If you don't want to go to a mass orgy with the rest of the the, the, the school, I completely understand. We'll figure it out when you're feeling better. No, instead, he is trying to be very persistent and force this girl into accompanying him to this mass orgy. And it just seems like it's very inconsiderate of her. It is. Well, like I said, this character is a despicable character, not well-written at all. Um, Cindy, in the meantime, is out back giving her sex talk to the girls. Basically just saying, guys don't know how to do anything. They're actually going to need you to help put their dicks inside you. And then there's some random girls asking questions about sex from Cindy. Like, oh, what would you recommend for birth control? And Cindy's like, well, don't have time for the pill. So I would recommend condoms. And Sandy's like, what about vaginal or clitoris stimulation? And Cindy's like, well, if you want that, you better masturbate. This girl needs to be teaching sex ed in high schools across, she basically across, is. across the country. Oh. Take her take her on a nationwide tour and have her just take her to the bleachers and let her just preach her preach her knowledge <laughs> because she's so confident in telling these girls what they got to do. 
to get it in. And the girls look at her as like a soothsayer. They think she's so knowledgeable. And I mean, she <laughs> she does look like a, a token blonde whore that you'd see in any movie. So I guess I guess if anyone knows it, it's going to be this gal. But um, it's it's such a weird weird scene. It's so weird. But I guess it's just hitting. It's supposed to be hitting home the fact that these are virgins, right? They're they're so virginal that they need the resident school slut to give them a pep talk before they go in for this giant orgy. The principal is in his office and he sees a news broadcast that's right outside the school. Basically, the news the news the news reporter knows that these students are planning a sex party. And this is the first he's hearing about it. So he gets on the announcements. He's like, students, I hear that you're planning this this party tonight. If you attend, you will be punished to the full extent of my ability. The bell rings and these fucking horny ass kids go wild. They run out of the building and they're jumping on the news van. They're, they're chanting, hail, hail, fuck or die. Hail, hail, fuck or die. I mean, these kids are certainly excited about losing their virginity they're more excited about this fuck fest than they are about the fact that half their student population has been slaughtered well and i love that the sheriff is also like all about this goddamn fuck party well because Because, he wants to fuck his daughter roger i know but like yes yes but i think there's a lot of reasons that this orgy should not be taking place aside from the fact that it's it's a group of i'm guessing upwards two to 300 teenagers having sex in, in one space, the STDs alone. I mean, someone's going to die from chlamydia. I mean, like the first ever case of someone dying from chlamydia would be because of this goddamn orgy party. So there's that. There's the health risks. But also, they're having this goddamn orgy in an abandoned building. I mean, could the police officers not present an argument that that alone is reason to shut this shit down because I'm pretty sure this is trespassing. But eventually when you do see this orgy take place, because oh, how it takes place, the police are outside like standing out there like goddamn bodyguards, just like kind of letting it go (laughs) down. Like there are so many reasons why this is a horrible idea and why so many people could get in trouble and they kind of just let it happen. And the sheriff is kind of, in charge of that. He's kind of the one who's like, yeah, it's fine. Like, uh, like if nothing goes wrong, don't make a big deal out of it. And I think that's just so problematic. This is the man that a is in charge of the local police department. He's the sheriff. He's the one calling the shots. That's an issue. B he's trying to fuck his daughter and C when we find out his backstory and his relationship to the killer, it makes it seem even more sleazy. Yeah. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. that they, they, they didn't put a stop to this. Like they could have easily, easily put a stop to this. I think any, any, you know, competent sheriff would have put an end to this, but nope. He lets it go, go on. Jody gets home to her mother. Uh, mother's like, how was your day at school? And she's like, Oh, it's okay. The deputy was watching me like a hawk. I'm like, yeah, sh- I bet she was. The mother is making cookies and she's like, oh, well, ex- excuse me. They're just a little burnt. These things are burnt. They're black. This mother is, this mother is drunk. She's drinking right from the goddamn bottle. Yeah. I love her. She asked if she's ever heard of Laura Lee Sherman. 
because Jody, remember, overheard this conversation her dad had with the principal on the phone. The mom plays dumb and says she's never heard of her. Takes a swig of whiskey as Jody leaves the room. I get some real Nancy Thompson mob vibes from this particular character, you know, from Nightmare on Elm Street, Ronnie Blakely, because it's kind of the same sort of character, an alcoholic who's harboring a secret from her daughter. Very similar. Well, and and what you said earlier uh, regarding the fact that like the relationship between the, the two parents is, you know, so not explored. They also make it even more um, disjointed by by throwing in this, you know, fact that the mom is like obviously a struggling alcoholic. You know, she's obviously it's not even like she's just having a couple drinks. The woman's drinking liquor from a bottle. She's chain smoking. She's so drunk that at one point she's smoking and the ash is so long that her daughter has to just take the cigarette from her and ash it for her and put it back in her hand. Like this woman is obviously like struggling with something. And yet her husband is so removed from the situation. He's not present whatsoever um, to help address these issues with his wife. It never comes up in dialogue. He never talks about it with his daughter. It looks like they just kind of accept the fact that the mom's an alcoholic and nobody really cares. It makes it feel like the relationship between the parents is, I mean, just non-existent. It almost feels like they wrote in the mom separately and filmed her scenes at a completely different point. They must have had access. They they realized they had access to Candy Clark and they're like, hey, let's write a let's write a role just for her. Because yeah, it's so I keep mentioning it, but it's so weird that the mother and father never interact. Before we get deep into the moment with Candy Clark that's coming up, and there's like a whole sleuthing montage that's about to hit, because every movie from the genre within this era needs one. One other scream tie-in I really want to bring up. I want to go back to this. This whole moment with the kids when they're coming out of the high school and there's this news reporter doing a report on what's going on in this town. And this is a moment that felt extremely screamed to me um, because you've got this whole scene where this male news reporter is in front of his, um, like, you know, van, the news van, and you got the cameraman filming it. And the kids start spilling out and they're all starting to celebrate this impending orgy because that's what they're reporting on, this goddamn orgy. Everyone, it's, it's not like it's like a hush-hush cover up like don't tell anybody about the orgy like it's on the news like people people know the orgy's coming get ready get your hymens ready because they're about to be annihilated um but you've got this very like prominent news reporter element here for a moment that's like just screaming scream to me because that whole like the new the whole news reporter aspect is in every single movie you don't go a single screen movie without having a pinch of it. And Gail always being present, obviously. But, you know, they're always reporting on the big murders. God, this felt straight out of a screen movie to me. A lot of this film seems straight out of a screen movie. And I guess it makes sense. It's a post-Scream slasher. Scream is the film that revitalized the slasher film. So I guess it makes sense that films that came after it are tr- were trying to, you know, replicate, you know, certain parts of it for their own purpose in order to have their film be successful. But yeah, some of them are just, it's... It's pretty blatant. Sheriff is planning on going to West Virginia for some reason. Um, we don't really know at this point until later on in the film when it's going kind to of reveal what he's doing there for, what he's going there for. Although it was mentioned that earlier on by the um, 
principle that Laura Lee Sherman had moved to West Virginia 25 years ago and nobody's heard from her since. So obviously we can infer that that's probably what he's going there for because Laura Lee Sherman, she seems to be a key player in this film because if we remember, that's the name of the person that came and knocked on Annette's door, right? This is when the sheriff, uh, the deputy asks about the sex party and what she should do. And this is when the sheriff tells her not to bother the kids. Don't bother them unless there's trouble. Jody is at her public creepy ass library that nobody seems to be in. She's the only one in there. Apparently there's no librarian or anything. She's on a, she's on the microfish machine, which are these old machines you use to look up newspaper articles that are no longer in their physical print. And she does come across a small article about Laura Lee Sherman. And all the headline says is local teen disappears. And the picture of Laura Lee Sherman looks a lot like the, the killer, long, dark hair, kind of cover in their face. In the meantime, she hears this noise in this creepy library. And this is a very creepy, creepy library. It's very one of those old creepy town libraries. It looks like it's in the basement even. Uh, she gets up to explore and it's you know supposed to be suspenseful. When she runs into her mother, what the fuck is her mother doing at the library? And how does her mother know she's at the library? But the mother's there, grabs her, is like, what are you doing? Get your ass home. I have so many questions about this very small scene in general. Like, <laughs> I mean, first of all, you know, the local girl disappearing. Why? I don't understand why a newspaper article would write a story on something like that. Whereas, like, it, it's clear that. Eventually, it's made clear that Laura Lee, it's not like she died or was abducted. She just moved away. She just, she left. So it's like, is it really worth like a newspaper article? But okay, let's continue. Second of all, what the fuck is Brittany Murphy doing in this foreboding library 24 hours or less since she's been violently attacked in another relatively empty building? Her high school. Like, I would be surrounding myself with people. I wouldn't be going anywhere alone. And here she is sitting in the middle of this goddamn fucking, like, the scariest library I've ever seen. Being, you know, coy and, and looking in, looking into this information, trying to think that she's doing things like sleuthing. And, and then her mother stumbles upon her and she's pissed that she went off on her own. Understandably so. You just had someone try to carve the word virgin to your thigh and kill you. Well, it does lead to the conversation that they have about what happened to Laura Lee Schaefer and who she really was. The mother finally admits that Laura Lee was a high school student that went to high school with her years ago who claims that she was raped by four seniors, but nothing was ever done. Nothing happened because Laura Lee Schaefer was from a poor family. She wasn't well-liked. She wasn't popular. And the four guys who supposedly raped her were from good families, very good families. So they were able to sweep it under the rug. Jody asks who they were, and the mother reveals that two of the guys left town years ago, which she's like, we were so grateful for because it allowed us to move on. I'm like, bitch, it doesn't sound like any of you were too concerned that this girl was raped in the first place. Like, what do you mean these two guys moving away years later let you move on and healed you? I'm like, ugh. And then she realized, and then she reveals one of them was the principal. The other was, drum roll, Jody's dad. Of course it was. But he was drunk and he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't participate. He was just too drunk. Of course, Jody is. Not pleased to hear this. 
we are then given a scene where Sheriff is in West Virginia. Apparently he arrives at the old Sherman house. It's old, abandoned, creepy. He goes inside, explores for a bit, kind of goes nowhere until he goes to the basement and finds this doll in a crib that has its a rope around its neck. Did I see that right? Yeah, this whole basement looks like somebody is attempting to create awful and pretentious modern art in the basement. And then there's this baby doll just wrapped in a shroud. Yes, it, yeah, I mean, it's very... Uh, it's obviously trying to imply something to the viewer, like whoever's here had a really weird, sick childhood. Um, but like, that's all it is. It, you know, the scene really gave me vibes of the moment. And I know what you did last summer where, oh, yeah. they, where they go to the house, but it's without, um, and having a, a, without Anne Hage. I mean, don't give me the scene unless you give me fucking Anne Hage. Uh, but it gave me that vibe because it's like this kind of rural abandoned building, but it doesn't really go anywhere at all. No, he finds this doll and then he goes back out to his car. And when he's out there, we see this figure step into frame and watch him leave. This, who is this? I think it's Laura Lee. Laura Lee made her way from Virginia, Cherry Falls, Virginia, to West Virginia, followed the sheriff there so that she could look at him from the house. I'm just saying, this scene makes absolutely zero fucking sense. Who is this person? Well, Troy, my question is, because, I mean, like, let's be real. There is obviously a big reveal at the end of the movie where the killer is somebody, and it's not Laura Lee. Is it ever said that Laura Lee died? The actual Laura Lee? Laura Lee herself did not die, did she? No, but that ho- nobody is living in that house. This house was dilapidated, falling apart. I think crazy Laura Lee is living in that fucking house. There's no doors or windows on. I mean, the well, whole house looks like it's about ready. To- she, You know what? At this point in the game, she sure don't seem like a stable individual based off the flashbacks we get. Maybe she's just a, maybe she's a reclusive vagrant. So she's, she's just living in this squalid, dilapidated house. Okay. Up for this film. I'll buy it, Roger. He goes out to his car. Deputy calls him and says that she got a message that she's supposed to meet with the principal later that evening at the high school. He's like, okay, I'm on my way home. Now we are treated to a scene with Jody showing up to Kenny's house while he's playing the guitar. He's horrible. (laughs) Oh my. He is in no way enticing to me whatsoever. No, this whole scene is just could have been cut from the film and I would have been completely happy. She goes up to his room. They're laying on the bed like they're laying like facing each other. He's caressing her feet. She's caressing his feet and kissing his leg. And she's like, my parents are frauds. He's like, yeah, that sucks. Right. To find out your parents are more frauds than your than your friends are. And then it just all of a sudden, Roger launches into some really awkward toe sucking and foot play. Oh my God, what is this moment? These toes. (laughs) He starts sucking on her toes and she's like, oh, harder, harder. And she's like, starts kicking him in the face, telling him to suck her toes harder. And then she takes her top off. It's so fucking weird, man. She's like, I want to fuck. Let's just do it. Let's not wait for the party tonight. I want you now. And she like jumps on top of him and she's very aggressive and starts like grinding on him and trying to like take his shirt off. The tables have turned at this point. It's so weird because he's been so aggressive about having sex with her and it's come off as really skeezy 
and creepy and unlikable. But now she's taking the initiative with it. And she's, I mean, yeah, she's putting her toe in her, his fucking mouth and she's like, bite it, bite it. And then she starts smacking him with the other, the, the free foot. She starts smacking him on the face. She's like, bite it, but bite that toe, bite that big toe. And he's like, no, I don't want to bite that toe. And then she, <laughs> and then, then, yeah, she, she looks like she wants to eat his skin off. So, and then he, he says that he's not going to do it because it's clear, it's clear that she's just angry at her parents that she's wanting to get back at her parents how does this make any sense though this is yeah. the same character that would just try to fuck her at the beginning of the movie like this you, character you really... would not have this change of heart exactly he i was not. gonna say you really expect us to believe this teenage horny ass boy is gonna have a change of heart and be like oh no sorry i'm not gonna fuck you because you're just you just want to fuck me because you're mad at your parents what difference does it make if she fucks you now or two hours from now at the party she's only fucking you at the party so she loses her virginity yeah, like, why is that special? Why is that okay? Uh, and then she, like, she leaves, and he gets in the doorway, and he says, If you go now, I don't want to see you again. It's over! And he does it in a way that's, like, so emotional and, like, honestly kind of gay. And this character is just all over the place. He does not have a consistent through story whatsoever. It's mind-boggling. Well, he does bring up, he does bring up Mr. Marliston to her he's like well you you um you have someone else you want to go to the party with tonight maybe mr marliston and she's like oh kenny really you're going there he's like she's like i didn't realize your mind was so diseased and she gets up yeah and leaves and he does grab her really aggressively and then she breaks away and then it's yeah she breaks away he's like you yeah if you walk out it's over i'll never talk to you again i'm like how is this character has done this 180 degree shift throughout the course of this film that really makes no sense. But whatever. Such an awkward scene. It really, to me, unnecessary. Does nothing to drive the plot. It actually, to me, it actually makes the Jody character seem a tad unhinged and unlikable at this moment. It does. I really feel like they could have, they should have just eliminated this scene. It messes with the pacing of the film anyways, because we're getting it to the climax and just to insert this, this scene here that just shows the Jody character so out of character. It's like it, I don't know. It does. It doesn't work. It doesn't work at this moment. Later, we cut to the sheriff arriving at the principal's office. He goes in, finds the principal dead at his desk with the words virgin, not carved in his forehead. I'm like, you want to talk about an awkwardly edited moment? Honestly, Troy, like, this is, like, just thrown in there. The sheriff just walks into the room, and then he, he, like, you don't see him, like, turn the chair or have a reveal. He just walks in, he's looking down, and it just cuts to the face looking back at him briefly. And it's just very, uh, it feels very rushed. It feels like, uh, like, oh, and by the way, this killer's, or this character's dead. The principal's dead, and moving on. Well, and then he gets knocked out immediately by the figure. Somebody gra- the figure grabs a trophy and knocks the sheriff out. I mean, it yeah, happens- this figure that manages to go completely unnoticed. Yeah, in, in how do? Yeah, it just comes out of nowhere. It, this is a tiny little principal's office, and you're trying to tell me the, the sheriff who is trained to investigate, you know, and to be cautious while investigating, doesn't see that there's this figure in the room. Okay. 
Um, so he gets knocked out. The party now, we are at the party. It's in full swing. Deputies are outside watching this go down. There's a big old bonfire out front, which to me would be enough to be like, hey, it's fire hazard. This place is closed down. But it's inside. It's just a bunch of random scenes of some of the minor characters that we've met throughout the film trying to hook up with each other. Like Mark is hitting on this girl named Sharon, but she doesn't like the sound or the smell of his cologne. So Sandy goes up to him and she does like the smell. So they hook up. This party is packed, packed. Uh, the S again, the STDs. It begs the question, are there really that many virgins in the school or did kids just show up to get f- to fuck? And then aren't these kids worried about performance anxiety? Like, you know, I would be, I know, I know me and I would be very uncomfortable trying to have sex with somebody in front of a group of literally 200 other people. I mean, and these are teenagers. I would think that they'd be a little more anxious about it, but no, they're, they're, they're asking girls to sleep with them left and right. Cindy wants in order to sleep with Ben, Cindy wants his CDs and his snowboard. So we are right. This is a whore. This is a full-fledged bonafide whore. She is sleeping with people for CDs and snowboards. I mean, that deal that she's setting up with this guy will does not age well. Like, give her 10 years and she will regret that. Those CDs will not have any value whatsoever. No. no and a snowboard, does she really, the Cindy girl snowboard, she's probably going to sell it. I don't know. Uh, and then Kenny is there hooking up with that horse face looking girl, uh, who tries to get with them. She's trying to like reach down his pants and he's like, Oh, this is the second night in a row. I'm going to stop a girl from getting in my pants. And he like runs away from her. And then this random dude comes up to her and he's like, Hey, you want to get with me? I always knew he was a butt pirate. Oh yeah. That little like anti-gay moment where he's like, I knew he was a butt pirate, but you want to get with a real man. I want to say anti-gay, yeah, but he's definitely yeah. like implying like. As a bad thing, but whatever. Jody is wandering around the neighborhood. Apparently she's on her way home from somewhere, but she sees Mr. Martison at his house. Imagine that. She just happens to walk by his house. He's dragging this um, chest into his house. He's having a hard time. She offers to help him. And as he's like, yeah, come help me. So she's helping him push this, this chest into the house. And she's like, you know what? You're the only person I trust at this point. He's like, well, what are you about your dad? He's like, she's like, no, I found some really horrible stuff out about my dad. He's like, oh, you did like that. He's a liar and a criminal and a cheat. And she's like, oh yeah. How'd you know? And he just pushes the, the trunk down the stairs. And let's it go down the stairs and hit the bottom of the basement floor. And she's like, what's inside that trunk anyway? And he says, oh, your dad. And she looks at him questioningly and, and goes down and opens the trunk. And lo and behold, it's her dad in there. Tied up, gagged, bloodied. And Martison comes up behind her and knocks her out. Oh, okay. So this moment. First of all, I do want to acknowledge the the one chick that was Sharon was straight up nibbling on Kenny's nipples at the, at the party. I just want to bring that up. She was nibbling on his nipples. Good for Kenny, getting himself a freak. Second of all, this this whole moment, Jody, why are you at your teacher's? Like, what brought you this direction? This is not acceptable. You're a teacher, Troy. If one of your students showed up on your property at like this time, you'd be like, I'm sorry, you need to go home. This is unacceptable. You need to go home. He welcomes her right in. Um, 
my issue with how this is structured is it is so abrupt and so quick that they just kind of introduce the fact that Mr. Marlston is the killer. Like there is no buildup. There is no like red herring element whatsoever. They don't ever imply or toy around with the idea that, oh, it could be somebody else. Nope. She arrives. They do the little shtick with the, with the trunk, open up the trunk, father's inside. He's the killer. And it comes really like out of the blue. It comes, it comes like out of nowhere. They just, they just introduce this fact without having any kind of storyline that allows it to kind of build or the mystery to swell or the reveal to come as a shock. They don't allow this to shock the audience. It just, it's handed to you. It's, it's very much handed to you as the viewer. Oh, by the way, this is the killer. And it feels very premature because there's still like 20 minutes left in the movie and uh, it, it removes any like who done it element away from this film. Yeah, it's a very underwhelming killer reveal, and it, it it sucks. It sucks because it could have been handled much differently, where it would have been much more effective. The way this is this is done is just so jarring. It comes out of nowhere, like you said. Jody comes to. She is tied to a table in in Mr. Marlison's basement. Her dad is in a chair. Mr. Martinson's there. He asks Jody's dad to tell her about Laura Lee Sherman. So we do get this scene where Jody's screaming that her mom already told her the story so that it isn't going to hurt her. And this gets really just, I mean, I don't know how much detail you want to go into this motive, but it's, it's basically Laura Lee Sherman was raped by you know, the sheriff, the principal, two other guys, they, they were coming home after a drunken, you know, night out. They saw her car broke down on the side of the road. They go to help her. They get a little aggressive with her. She calls one of them a homo, takes off running. They catch up to her, force alcohol down her, down her mouth, throw her on a picnic table and take turns raping her to the point where they force, you know, uh, Brent, is it Brett? Brent. Yeah, it's Brent. Brent. They force Brent, the sheriff, to lay on top of her and have sex with her. And he is drunk, but he knows what he's doing. He keeps saying, I knew what I was doing. I knew what I was doing. Ultimately, what has happens is Laura Lee moves away because nothing happens to the people that raped her. She knew nothing was going to happen. And she's gets pregnant. And Mr. Marlison is her son. And the sheriff, Sheriff Markin, is his father. And he is getting his revenge because he was abused by Laura Lee because he looked so much like his father, who happened to be the sheriff. And so we get a little bit flashback of her like beating him when he was a baby in his crib and stuff like that. So he has so much pent-up anger that he decided he was going to get his revenge on the town that ignored his mother being raped and, and caused her to have all this grief and anger by taking away their innocence. And what is their innocence? It's their virginal children. So here, there's your motive. I think that I, well, I honestly think that in regards to weak points within the film, um, the motive is not the worst of them. I mean, the, the motive is actually quite intriguing and kind of sad. The flashbacks are handled fairly well. Um, it's not by any means the worst aspect of the movie. I, I, if anything, it's probably one of the more plausible and realistic 
elements of the film. She, you know, this girl was raped and shamed out of her town. She carries that trauma with her. She spawns a child from rape. She has a, you know, a disdain towards that child because of what happened. And, um, and here we are, you know, now he is carrying that burden and the mental trauma that comes with it. I, find, I actually find that intriguing. I think that's more interesting. I'd love to have seen that explored further and handled more delicately. Um, but they pretty much like kind of gloss over it. And what's to come after that is so fucking absurd that you kind of just forget about the fact that there, this story that's being told about Laura Lee and what she went through is pretty unfortunate and sad. And I do believe that that Brent is uh tormented by what happened it does i mean he has this big breakdown moment where he's weeping in front of in front of them uh and admitting this story uh however the fact remains that he has been lying this entire time he's now the sheriff of this town he has been living a lie and he did in fact participate whether he was drunk or not participate in the raping of this girl to the extent that she spawned a child that is his so it it, it makes you not feel any feelings of sympathy or uh, anything positive towards the character of the sheriff at this point, even if he hasn't been portrayed as a negative character, because he really hasn't. Uh, I can't really, like, forgive this character for this awful thing that he did. I don't care if he was drunk, you know? Yeah, it's a very human, I think, motive. It's it's not far-fetched. It's it's grounded in some, in some reality in terms of how people might process trauma. Of course, we don't all want to say we don't want to say people that experience trauma are going to turn into homicidal maniacs. But I guess it makes the whole idea of the killer's motive and what his trademark is targeting virgins. It makes it make sense. Right. It's not some far fetched, ridiculous thing. It kind of when you think about it as a whole, it makes sense why he's targeting these specific kids, why he's targeting virgins. And so you, you go with it, right? But again, it's immediately sort of forgotten about because as he's getting ready to carve the word virgin into Jody, finally, the doorbell rings. Kenny has shown up. Uh, Marliston answers the door very aggressively. He's like, Kenny, what do you want? Kenny's like, uh, 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 and he's like, uh, 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 what, you can't talk anymore. He's like, I'm just looking for Jody. And he's like, Jody's not here. He's like, uh, her bike's next to your porch. She's like, no, it's not very just like standoffish aggressive and kenny's like why are you wearing lipstick he's like because it makes me feel pretty and kenny catches on something's wrong so he punches him in the stomach shuts the door runs inside the house shuts the door locks it goes down in the basement and finds jody tied to the thing starts untying her in the meantime marliston has gotten the axe from his backyard and starts chopping the door down he uh, gets in, goes down into the basement, struggles with Brent, Sheriff Brent, who is able to punch him and knock him down and gets on top of him to choke him. But Marliston gets a knife and stabs the sheriff in the throat with it. Yeah, the blood even sp- splatters across the, the character's faces and everything. Yeah, it kind of surprised me. That was that I didn't, you know, like the sheriff so far has been a pretty prominent character in the film. So killing him off was a bit shocking to me. Yeah. yeah. Particularly because of his, of his strong relationship with Jody, because not only does he stab him in the throat, the sheriff is able to get one jab with a knife into Marliston's leg, but then he picks, he takes the ax and hacks the shit 
out of the sheriff with it. But you don't see it, of course. No, you don't see it. You hear, you see Jody watching it as, as, as Kenny pulls her away. It has to be pretty traumatic. I got to say this whole moment where Kenny arrives at the house and there's this awkward conversation between him and, um, and, and Mr. Marston, a lot of aspects of the story at this point are just feeling so rushed. And it's, it's surprising because I mean, it's a movie, the movie's an hour and uh, 30 minutes, you know, it's a standard 90 minute runtime. Uh, but it spends so much time with these awkward scenes that really, uh, the, uh, the great scheme of things, do not serve a lot of purpose. One of them being the sequence uh, between the couple in the bedroom. I don't feel that really did anything for the film. It didn't, it didn't, you know, provide any depth or uh, development or anything. It didn't get further explored, you know? So uh, by the time we get to this moment, we have this big grand reveal with who the killer is. We have, of course, the sheriff dishes his side of the story. And then Kenny just shows up. Like, I mean, is this town so small that, like, he thought to ride by the teacher's house and spot her bike? Like, that seems very specific. Um, And then there's, like, whole awkward dialogue between the teacher and Kenny where the teacher is very, like, unhinged. He's standing there in the silk robe, and yes, he has lipstick on. But he's, like, in a way, he's trying to, like, kind of play it off. But at the same time, he's so, like, revved up and, and, uh, like, kind of just... uh, like I said, unhinged that there's no way that he's going to be able to hide that from Kenny. Like Kenny is obviously picking up on there is something wrong. Like you cannot cover it up. You are kind of batshit crazy. And it's, it's very obvious as you stand there with lipstick on. I just feel like they are rushing through these moments in a way that is depriving us, the viewer of like any surprises or thrills or shocks or, anything like we're now getting into the final stretch of the movie and the moment that i would want to see the most of we're now just rushing through it yeah it's i mean it's it's la it's i guess it's just lazy it's lazy it's just it's putting these characters in contrived situations so that they can get to the end of the film because I feel like with this fuck fest that was taking place is that's definitely was the whole, that was the main set piece of this whole film. I bet. I mean, that's kind of what they based. They came up with this idea. Whoever wrote this came up with this idea of this giant orgy. And that was where the film's climax was going to take place, but we have to get these characters there. So let's just do whatever we need to do. Let's contrived or not. Let's just do it to get these characters to that point. And that is what happens because Jody and Kenny run out of the house. They run into the woods towards these, this lodge, because apparently it's very convenient that Mr. Marlinston lives right behind this lodge, apparently where it's within running distance. They run into the woods. He's chasing them. They do run into a deputy and they're like, they, they're able to tell this deputy, Oh my God, Marlinston's the killer. He just killed the sheriff to the point where this deputy can make a call. He does call the other deputy, the female deputy and tell her Marlinston's the killer. Hey, here's what's up. And they're like, yeah, you need to come with us. You need to come with us. Come on. And he's like, Hey, this is my post. I can't split right before Marlison comes up behind him and basically splits his head in two with an ax. Again, you don't see it, but it's, well, you see the ax go into the head, but like, it's the top of the hat. You don't see not, anything. Yeah. There's no gore or anything. Yeah. Um, so this leads to Kenny and Jody running to into the um, orgy. They're running into the fuck, fuck fest. All the teens are in there. They're laying under blankets. It's very, for being a fuck fest and an orgy, it's very PG. 
Yeah. I mean, you don't see anything, but they are able to yell to the all the people in there that Mr. Morrison's the killer, and he comes in and says, Class dismissed. Oh my god, it's so fucking cheesy. And like there's several shots of him now dressed as the killer, like where he will there's one shot of him running from the house, for example, where it's like it's honestly borderline comedic because he's he's in this black dress and this wig carrying an act but he's like it's like not like we've talked about like trans portrayals in films like this before and representing queer individuals but this is not that this is literally just a man who is taking on the identity of his mother at certain points to like seek out her vengeance i guess but it it maybe kind of tapping into like a psycho mentality to a certain extent like he's kind of like operating as his mother or on behalf of his mother but it just doesn't land at all and it makes for like a rather awkward and comedic visual at times yeah i think that that is a big issue with the killers the the whole disguise of the killer and the the persona that the killer takes on i don't know if you yeah it's just when you see him like in full light and like it's so obvious who it is that it's like how did these characters not know who this was if this is literally how he was dressed i mean it's so obvious uh, panic exudes. All the kids try to get up. They, there's this scene where they all at one time try to go up the try to go down the stairs, and when the deputy is coming up the stairs, and she kind of gets pinned against the wall, and then all of the kids, like the banister of the staircase breaks, so all these kids like fall off the staircase onto the floor. Uh, again, it's it's panic. Marleston is able to catch Jody. And attack her, but Kenny jumps on top of him. And there's a small little fight between Kenny and Marleston again before Kenny is thrown against the wall and sliced open with the knife. Jody standing there, she's like, Kenny. And Marleston goes to attack her. And as he's running towards her, she has the right frame of mind to grab him and flip him through the patio glass window door. So he falls off the balcony and lands on top of a picket fence and is impaled on it. This final sequence has flashes and glimmering moments of what could have been of potential. I mean, this finale could have been so fucking great. Uh, And like the whole thing with the staircase is quite entertaining with all these kids in their boxers and Every single guy is wearing boxers, not a pair of briefs to be seen. And, and yeah, and every and everyone's got abs. Like it's very like late nineties, early two thousands. Everyone looks like straight out of an Abercrombie um, ad. But it's really like again neutered, cut short. You get to the upstairs. Kenny gets injured. You're supposed to care, but I don't because he's been so shitty up to this point that like I kind of wanted him to die. I'm gonna be. I really wanted him to die. I thought I, I he has not made up for his his past errors, you know? So, and then you get to this whole moment where like, she finally has his final showdown and he, the killer literally just runs at her and she like turns and throws him out the window. He goes over the railing and like, it's done. And it's like, really? Like after everything that just happened, why wouldn't you have given all of this more time and taken it more time to build up and develop who the killer is than kind of, like I said, prematurely just, introducing the like the killer this is who he is and finale and it's done it felt so rushed and so clunky and it just really is not a great payoff the last moment with the killer is kind of fun though 
Brit, yeah, Brittany Murphy doesn't really get a lot to do in this last segment. I, I, I would, I, I much would have liked to have seen a more extended chasing, more, more of her fighting back like she did in the chasing in the school. But it's so quick, and yeah, you just see so much potential of what could have been here with this final scene of, with all these kids and all these literal victims. There are there are shots of him like when he first gets into the house of like slashing people that he's going by, but it's it's very it's it's almost nothing it's you don't see anything except maybe some blood splashing this could have been an, a a very elaborate entertaining scene and instead it's just rushed through so when marliston is on the picket fence at the very end of the film ben or it's mark cute mark goes up to him and is like oh man marliston and he goes to touch him and of course, he comes back for one final scare before the deputy shoots him several times with two guns. This bitch is holding a gun in each hand. She looks like um, uh, Karma from House of the Dead. She busts, she busts out double fist in it. And she shoots him so many times that when it reveals the kids all like looking at him in shock, they're all covered in his blood. And Mark, if you look, you'll notice has his hand now removed from the rest of his body, the hand is now just attached to the top of his head. That's what he gets for messing. She, sh- she shot his hand. <laughs> Did she shoot his hand off? Is that I guess. I- is that- am, I supposed to- am I supposed to believe this lesbian shot him so many times that she severed his hand from his arm? Well, you know what? I don't feel bad for Mark. He should have not been messing with that dead body. I mean, let Mr. Mollerston die in peace there on his fucking white picket fence which is a kind of a fitting sort of ending for him because that's really all he wanted, Roger. Right? See how poetic this film is? He just wanted a, a, li- a perfect life to live with a white picket fence house, and he ends up dying on a white picket fence. Oh, oh my God, the symbolism. It's, um, it's like a fun, entertaining ending moment, but like, I, I don't know. It really, like, everything that's happened up to this point, I just don't really care like i don't i care about britney murphy to a certain extent but they did make the poor choice of like including several scenes that i don't think did her character favor towards the end of the movie so even with her character i'm kind of like standoffish and then to follow this up they make the bold choice of having a scene in which 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 jody and her mother are sitting speaking with a detective and they choose to not disclose the fact that their you know their fallen father slash husband, the sheriff, had been lying about this rape this whole time and had in fact participated, in which he blatantly told his wife he had not participated because she blatantly told her daughter in that conversation he had not participated. So he had been lying this whole time. He, the sheriff, lied. They chose to continue lying and cover it up for him. And they decide to move forward instead of at least explaining why this character had some sort of vendetta against all these people. They just try to pass it off as this character being completely unstable and crazy. Oh, exactly. Because he asks them, he's like, you have no idea why Mr. Marliston would be killing people. And they're like, Nope. I I, you, I, I don't know whether I buy that they would be that protective of him I mean, I get why they're doing it. I'm, ter- I'm, ta- I'm talking about them being protective of their father, of Brent, the sheriff. 
you know, they, they want to protect his legacy. You know, he was, he was murdered. They don't want people now knowing after his death that he was a raper, but I thought that it was like common knowledge in this town anyways. Like, isn't it, the town knows who the four boys were that did this. So it's not like it's not known. So, I mean, through the conversations we get earlier in the film, it's pretty common knowledge that these four well-to-do boys were the ones that did it and that it's well known, but it was swept under the rug because even Candy Clark's character says, oh, those two other, the two other ones left and it just, it made it let us heal. It let us move on. So obviously it's known. So why are you protecting him? You know, I mean, as, as horrible as it is, this Laurel Lee and her deranged son do deserve a little bit of recognition for, for what happened to them. I mean, so it is a, a, an interesting choice. Again, kind of a sour note to end the movie on because they're questioned. They leave as she is, as they're leaving, she's getting into the car with her mother and she sees a glimpse of a figure that looks exactly like the Laurel Lee figure. A school bus stops in front of it. It pulls away and nothing's there. And then the, the final shot of the film is the falls, the waterfalls of cherry falls. The water turns blood red. Yes. It's very strange. I'm guessing it's the period blood of all the girls who, uh, are, are now going to be missing their periods because they're all pregnant. <laughs> but um, it's it just a very strange conclusion to the movie, filled with poor choices. And uh, honestly, I, I walk away from this movie with, I don't want to say I hate it by any means, but a strong dis- dislike for a lot of the choices that were made. I'm, I can still be entertained by a lot of this movie. However, it is it is inconsistent tonally inconsistent character wise. It's inconsistent. There's virtually zero gore. I mean, if you're going to watch a slasher film, don't you at least want to see some gore? And I know this film, I I know this film is widely beloved by horror fans. Uh, I see it mentioned all the time as one of the best post scream slashers. And I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't see it. I'm entertained by it. Will I watch it again? Oh yeah. I can see myself watching this again at some point, a couple of years down the line. But it's a film that I think had a lot of nostalgia, has a lot of nostalgia to it for a lot of slasher fans because of the story behind this. And if you were, you know, if you were a a horror fan like me when this film first came out and there was news of this film and it was all over the Internet about how, oh, my God, this film is going to be cut. And it was initially going to get an X rating or an NC-17 rating. And it really there was a lot of hype about the film and how violent and it was going to be. And then you didn't hear anything from it for a couple about it for a couple years. And then all of a sudden it drops on USA network and this very neutered blase PG version of what you as a slasher fan were being told was going to be one of the most violent, you know, films to come out after scream. And it just isn't. And the character choices are, are just all over the place. And, you know, I mean, it is what it is at the end of the day. It's there's a lot to enjoy about the film, but God, I would not say it's one of the best post scream slashers. There is. I, I just would not. It's, you know, what amazes me, Troy, with this movie is that even though it was not originally made to look, or <laughs> it was not filmed to be a made for TV movie. When I watch it, it fucking feels like one. And not not just because the horror and gore is removed, but also because a lot of the like writing choices were so weak. And the 
aesthetic, the style of the character of the, I'm sorry, of the killer, the look of the killer is is not something that I feel holds up. It's not cinematic. It's not, there's no mask, you know, one of the things that made post scream slashers kind of interesting or the different like mass choices and stuff like that. You don't get that here. And the cinematography in this film is pretty flat too. And that helps it definitely with giving it a made for TV vibe. But again, it's not, I'm not saying I hate this film at all. I'm just looking at it from a different perspective all these years later. Um, when I watched it this time around, I was just very surprised at how, underwhelmed I was by the whole thing. And I'll just leave it at that. I mean, we, we, that's all I can say. Another thing I think that really um, throws me off here is the fact that if you look at the size of the cast, the volume of characters they introduce, and I'm going to contrast this against, I brought up a few times, but an urban legend, because they do a similar structure in that urban legend, you get introduced to a lot of characters in a classroom sequence and you, you meet all of them. And then one by one, all those characters die. This movie takes the time to introduce you to so many fucking characters that are just the potential for fodder, you know, for body count. And none of them are disposed of. The body count in this movie is surprisingly low. And sure, maybe they claimed that they were going to be this big gore fest. But I mean, I don't see a lot of risks being taken here. Even with the edits that took place, I don't see how this was supposed to be something so very violent. Because not a lot of people die. When they do, they die in pretty simplistic ways. You know, like even like the reveals of the bodies found at the beginning by the riverside. I don't see how that could have been anything mind-blowing in the sense of gore, you know? So I don't see just how much further they really could have taken this movie. It's shot in a way that it is very flat, blasé. Um, and it doesn't have a lot of suspense. Like there's just not a lot of of effective shock. There's shock in the, like some of the decisions that are made. It's written to shock people, but I'm saying like the shock and suspense that, that sends shivers down your spine. It lacks that completely. I can't think of a single moment in this movie that actually scares me. Is it entertaining? Sure. But you know, without the blood and gore, it's not scary whatsoever with the blood and gore. I don't know if it would have been any scarier, maybe it would have been more violent, but I don't know if this movie would ever have been something that would have really been a landmark piece of horror cinema. Yeah. And I, I get it. You know, um, I, I feel like it has a interesting premise and I think that's what the film gets a lot of attention for is the fact that, Oh, this film, it's killing virgins. It's turning the tables because in most slasher films, it's the promiscuous people that are getting killed. You know, you can't have sex in a slasher movie. You're going to be killed. Oh, this is doing something clever, which it, in, in theory, that's a cool concept, but in execution in this particular film, it does not, it falls flat, but that's, I mean, that's cherry falls for you. You know, I, it, let us know your thoughts in the comments. I mean, I know this is a pretty beloved film, so I think we're probably going to get some pushback um, on some things we've said, but Hey, we are here for it. We want to engage with you. So let us know, Roger. Well, not, I was saying, let us know. And then I was going to say, Roger, <laughs> You know, we are, we are more than, uh, willing to listen to your thoughts on this film. So Cherry Falls episode 60 down one of our longer ones, uh, it looks like, which is interesting because I really didn't think it was going to go on this long, but Hey, we get detailed before we go. You have any last thoughts? Do you want to reveal what our next film is going to be next week? 
Yeah. Oh my God. I'm very excited. We're having a guest. Woohoo. We're having a guest. And what, I mean, what better time to have this guest? Because now is a time to celebrate their, their, uh, their recent release. Um, our next episode is going to be a film that I am very excited to talk about. Uh, we're going to be discuss- discussing um, a little bit more of a recent offering into the horror genre. Not a slasher, because I feel like we've done a lot of slashers lately. Uh, we're doing It Follows. Uh, yes. It, was it 2016, 17? I'd even look. Yeah, around there. Mm-hmm. Maybe around, yeah. But uh, a good a good time for the genre, I would say, that era. You know, late 2000 teens. And I really think It Follows was um, kind of a landmark pinnacle offering. Because it's something very fresh and different. Uh, which you don't get a lot of anymore. Uh, and our guests for this episode, we're having one Wayne um, Gonzalez. I hope I'm saying that right. Gonzalez. It's not Gonzalez, is it? Is it Gonzalez? Troy. I think you, How- you think you said it right. The I, first should have asked, I should have asked. <laughs> Gonzalez? He can correct me. Well, because I'm looking at he my is, writing. Here's the I'm thing. Not, he is the star of the film Death Drop Gorgeous, which just hit Shudder. Just hit Shudder. Shudder, people. Shudder. Shudder. And this is a little indie film. And me and Roger's indie filmmakers, this is a huge deal. Huge it's a little deal. indie film that could. Yes. A little gay indie film. The that little gay, and it's on Shudder. So he is the star of the film. Oh my God, Wayne Gonzalez, Gonzalez, I think <laughs> Gonzalez, Gonzalez. I've got to ask him before we record the episode because I'll sound like an asshole. Uh, but I, I really, I thought I was going into this prepared, we're and here so, I am. We're sorry, marbles in my mouth. we're sorry, Wayne, if we, but we are <laughs> super excited to have him on to discuss. We love him. Yeah, we love them all oh. because we've had all the other guys on. So it's Wayne is who. I guess we're saving the best for last. It's like the song by uh, Vanessa Williams, saving yeah. the best for last. So yeah, that'll be next week. It follows with the special guest. Uh, be sure guys to check out death drop gorgeous on shutter before next week's, because I'm sure we will talk uh, about it some with, uh, with him. So check it out. It's a lot of fun. It's a little indie film that they just went all out on and it. It's it, you'll have a blast with it. So check it out until next week. When we do It Follows, folks, let us know your thoughts. Again, check out Patreon. Check out uh, Apple Podcasts to give us a review. We'd much appreciate it. We would. And we appreciate you. We appreciate you. So we hope we popped your cherry tonight. And if not, go get it popped. <laughs> With, we should have. After two and a half hours, we should pop, pop your cherry. That was a lot of work. So your cherry better be popped. <laughs> that is a long one. All right, guys. We love you. All right. Good night. Good night. Good night.